Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Ready Room. My guest today is Professor Noah Chrome. Noah is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach whose incredible journey from a debilitating back injury that left him barely able to stand to improbably becoming a black belt training under the tutelage of UFC and Pride veteran Ricardo Almeida is nothing short of inspirational. Noah's story is a decades-long journey of trials and broken dreams that ultimately led to his becoming an elite practitioner and coach in one of the toughest jiu-jitsu schools in the world. I've known Noah for a few years now, having trained at the same gym for a time, and then having my daughter start training there a couple of years later when Noah was in charge of the youth classes. Noah is one of those people whose kind and gentle exterior masks an intensity, fueled by an inner desire to be a protector of those who can't protect themselves. His motto, strength and kindness, is a constant theme that resonates in everything he does. Although I've known him for several years now, we never talked much beyond the halls of Ricardo Almeida's school, so listening to his story blew me away. The improbable path that led him to where he is now and the hardships that life threw his way would have caused other men to call it in. Instead, he reinvented himself and he prevailed. This was one of the best conversations I've had in the ready room. Noah is truly an honest and genuine individual, and I love the way he looks at life. Noah, let's get that fight club going, and the next time you're in the ready room, we'll talk about how your new school is packing them in. Ladies and gents, Noah Chrome. How are you, brother? All right, let's do it, man. What do you got for me? <laughs> what do you got for me, man? Um, oh, you, man, I tell you what, I, I can uh, I can talk your ears off. I can make your ears bleed. So lead me down the, the path you want to go down. Well, that's good, man, because uh, the, the worst is when I when I talk to somebody who, uh, you know, you have to kind of pull <laughs> a lot of things. So so that, talk away, man. And, and most of my uh, most of these things go for over an hour. So uh, I don't know how long we'll talk tonight, but all right. Well, I've got I've uh, cleared my schedule and uh, I picked up uh, six pack of IPAs. So I'm ready to go. Nice. Nice. Man, I wish I could join you on IPA, but I, I just didn't. You know, I was just the, the hiccups are probably from last night because I, I had a guy's night uh, with my buddies who, you know, one lives in Kentucky, one lives in Texas. So we're doing a Zoom uh, virtual get together and we all. Jeez Louise, we all bought the uh, same bottle of uh, bourbon. Oh, I saw that. That looked, yeah. be- it looked beautiful. Oh, it was wonderful. It was an incredible bottle. Um, so we, we drank that last night. I mean, obviously, I didn't drink the whole thing, but I drank enough that I, I woke up with the hiccups, and they, they've been with me all day. So um, hopefully they, they go away sometime during this. <laughs> but how you doing, man? How you doing in quarantine? Is, how's it treating you? You know what? I'm actually somehow I'm uh, I'm managing it. You know, um, I I think uh, I've been I've been kicked in the nuts a few times before, and uh, so I know I can survive it, and so it's given me a little bit of confidence. I think to uh, you know enjoy this time with my family, and uh, you know I, I spend a lot of time with the kids anyway. Uh, but uh, you know my daughter, she's going to be seven in June, and uh, she's been a full time school since she was in pre K. 
So, uh, you know, I'm never going to have time like this again, probably with her, you know, this kind of intensity. And so I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, man. I, I'm, I feel the same way. And I think most of us do, um, you know, the, the time with family has been just incredible. Um, you know, like you were saying just before, you know, you see, I've, I've been posting all the pictures of us out on the farm and we just, you know, we've been enjoying it. And frankly, the homeschooling part has been going really well. I, I've been, you know, there's other parents that are talking about the nightmare of homeschooling and, you know, my daughter's done real well. So, so uh, and, and, you know, you know, I don't knock on wood, I guess it's just who she is, but I've actually kind of enjoyed it. I mean, if the, basically if the school has gotten all their stuff, you know, ducks in a row, then we can start school at nine and be done by noon uh, with all her classes. And that's like six different assignments. So it's that's actually been kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then go out in the world and have your other part of your education. Right. Well, it helped, it helps to have 500 acres to uh, roam around on. 500 acres? Yeah. Well, not quite. Uh, 457, I believe. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah, Please invite me, invite me someday. Yeah, I'd love to uh, check it out. I've got four. I feel like I'm the king of the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Four acres for most people would be just a, a heck of a lot. I mean, I, yeah, this has definitely been a, a, a unique experience um, living out here on the farm. So I absolutely come over anytime, man. I'll take you tromping through the woods. It's great. Um, but yes, so we've been enjoying that. And, um, uh, and I think you hit the nail on the head for a lot of people. This has been a real, um, it almost, you know, there's a silver lining, that blessing in disguise. Yeah. The family time and being able to spend time with the kids and, and my wife. And uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. You know, and Aerie's still going to school. You know, Rutgers canceled other classes, but not everything's online. So she's got her master's that she's working on. So, wow. um, yeah, it's, they're not going to have a graduation. She didn't get to walk across the stage, but um, she'll be finished here in May. So that's crazy. Yeah, not, not a lot of jujitsu, though. Oh man, you know it's it's crazy. I mean, so uh, so well, we're on the topic of jujitsu. All right, so February, January, February, I'm actually putting bids on spaces, storefronts in Eatontown, uh, you know, area, a little down to maybe Belmar, like that that little corridor there, yeah, Route 35. And uh, you know, I spent money on lawyers. I mean, I actually invested. I mean, I was ready to go. You know, my business plan was in a row. I had my capital. I mean, I had my lawyer, you know, and I just so happened, I, I, I got outbid on a place uh, end of February. End of, can you believe that? Yeah. And, you know, th- I, right now I'm saying thank God, you know, because <laughs> yeah. uh, that'd be tough to have a two-year uh, a lease or a three-year lease right now, yep. you know, at four grand a month or whatever it is, or th- somewhere around that expense-wise. So, um, you know, I had, uh, I, you know, like during the day, I, uh, I, primarily work with adults who have injuries, you know, pain issues, chronic pain issues, knees, back, neck. That's really my specialty. Uh, so I was doing that all day and I essentially, I left that job because for a variety of reasons. And, uh, I mean, I was getting ready to open up this school and I thought I would be standing in front of a strip mall someplace receiving, you know, mats, and stuff like that right now. So uh, it's a kind of scary time. You know, it's just like, I hope, I hope I'm not going to lose my profession, you know, through all this, you know. Um, and, you know, when you look at the, you know, the, the various graphs with these, these uh, pand- pandemics and stuff like that, it could be a couple of years before people are really ready to roll on the ground and, you know, sweating each other's faces. So I, uh, I'm uh, incredibly fear, uh, I shouldn't say fearful, 
I'm, I'm managing my fear state, yeah. but I'm, um, I'm very conscious and I can see and hear uh, the fear in a lot of small business owners, uh, you know, and what they're saying because, you know, uh, most businesses, the profit margin is not that great. Yep. You know, most people, they can't close a business for, for 10% or 20% of their year um, and survive. So thankfully, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, a well-run school, the profit margins are usually pretty decent. So if as an owner, you were conservative and you put away 10% every year, so you have a little bit of cash, you know, like Apple does or whatever that is, um, I think those folks are going to be okay. But those folks who were living on a shoestring budget, I think most of those are probably – I don't know what's going to happen with those, you know? Yeah, no, it's, we just talked about my last podcast was, uh, me and my partner talked about all of this and, uh, I, I am right there with you. One of the, you know, we, we of course talked about the, you know, obviously the, the dangers associated with the, uh, coronavirus, um, COVID-19 and, and, but, but we also talked a lot about, you know, our, our response our response to it as a society and how that, uh, you know, what implications are there. And of course we all know that the, the main, the main implication is, is economic, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, in terms of second and third order effects, that's just definitely a second order, but, uh, and so you're, you're right, man, small businesses. I don't know how they're, I feel very fortunate that I'm in a position where I have been able to weather this and continue to weather it. Um, you know, because I, uh, I retired from the Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I am in that, you know, I'm able to keep the roof over the head and, and meals on the table, but I don't, yeah, I don't know how some of these people are doing it. I, I know very well. There are many that aren't. Um, so yeah, I can understand that fear, man. I'll tell you though, I, I got, I think that people, you know, when we, when we start to poke our heads back out and I, uh, I kind of sense that that's coming probably within the next couple of weeks. Uh, matter of fact, we just got an email from uh, my daughter's school saying that they are planning to reopen May sometime uh may 20 something or 16th i can't remember yeah i think we got that uh at allentown they're, they're aiming for may 15th yeah yeah that's i have, i think it's kind of a moving target though i imagine oh absolutely yeah yeah well you know it's interesting you bring up uh you know your career in the marine corps because i feel like uh this time is actually it's a big mirror for me for sure uh you know it's an opportunity to kind of look at you know, where I've fallen down on the job and where I haven't, you know, where I haven't planned for, it's kind of hard to plan for something like this, but uh, where I have, where I failed to plan, you know, because if, you know, if you're, if you're a teacher in a public school right now, you know, you're still getting paid, you still have your benefits, you're still going to get your pension. Um, so there, uh, just as an example, so, you know, there are certain careers which um, people are, nothing's really going to change for them, you know, and, but, you know, I saw this back in uh, really 06, 06. I had my lower back fused. And at the time I was construction manager and I went out in July of 06 and I wanted to come back to work in October. I had a phenomenally fast recovery, phenomenally fast. It's just unbelievable. And I was highly motivated to not lose my job. But unfortunately what happened was um, the housing market started to crumble and the builders, I mean, we were the first ones who really knew about it and were facing it. And so hiring freeze across the whole field. So I, Essentially, you know, I was from 18 to 32, I worked in the trades. I worked full-time in the trades during the day, went to school at night to pay my way to the college of New Jersey. And I was, you know, pretty heavily invested in that. And, I, you know, I became a construction manager for the for Nanian, which is the biggest builder in New Jersey. And, I, you mean, I thought I made it. Uh, I really thought, okay, I, hit the, I finally made it. It took me 14 years, but I hit the lottery, you know. I'm working for the best company in New Jersey, uh, top 10 in the whole country. 
Um, I was working with the best team. I was working at Manalapim. So I was working as really smart guys. Um, we were closing a million and a half worth of housing a week. So, um, you know, three of us are producing or managing, you know, $1.5 million a week products. I had so much fun, man. I really loved that. A Wrangler driving around on the job site, you know, everything was great. Um, but when I went back, you know, I, I essentially lost my career, uh, with the last recession, you know, I had to start from scratch and I started from scratch, you know, I never thought I was going to be a coach. I just said, well, I know a lot about weightlifting. So I want to become a personal trainer and I'll, you know, maybe I can make a couple bucks while this whole thing, you know, reboots. And uh, it's crazy is, you know, that was in 06. And here we are 14 years later, uh, the exact amount of time I spent in the, in the trades one way or another. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, am I going to have to make another, you know, right turn here? Because, you know, I look at it and I think, you know, I don't want to, I can't wait two years, you know, to, you know, you just can't do that. So I'm, uh, it's a very interesting place to be, but luckily because I have gone through this process before and I have reinvented myself, um, um, I'm well acquainted with the process, you know, um, of, uh, self-learning and, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, one of the nice things about going to college is it teaches you, you can teach yourself just about anything if you can read a book. And, um, so there's a lot of things like that out there and, and, and thank God now with, um, you know, with the, with the technological era and, you know, in 06, you could maybe get a degree from, uh, you know, Arizona, you know, online or whatever, yeah. but it wasn't really respected like it is now, you know, now every single school, just about, you can get a degree primary, almost completely online. So, and that's how people are doing it. So it's not going to be a thing. I don't think it's going to be quite the same. There's a lot more options. Let's put it that way. If you're somebody who has a little bit of drive and is willing to, you know, burn the midnight oil a little bit, um, there's a lot more opportunities. And what I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to think, okay, I still have the capital in place. I still have my business plan. Um, if the schools open up in September and, uh, you know, the kids are all out playing soccer and the kids are playing field hockey and, you know, wrestling starts and all that kind of, and, and kids better. are going in there. There's going to be a market, you know, for kids. I mean, you know, jujitsu in general, but you know, I really love, as you well know, but really lights my fire is uh, teaching kids how to be strong and kind, you know, teaching them how to be defenders and which is really, that's what I love most about teaching jujitsu is I get to, I get to act out a role that in which they can see that it's possible to be a big tough guy, but also be kind. And, um, so I feel called to do that. And so that's really what I'm, what I'm waiting for. You know, once the, once parents feel like it's safe to bring their kids back out, I think uh, people like me who cater to kids, uh, I think we're going to be okay. You know, that's why I keep, that's why I keep, uh, that's, I have a little bit of faith about that. You know, I've seen, so I, I hope it's not ill placed. No, I don't think so. Um, man, there's a lot in that. Uh, one thing, you know, that you, when you said you felt called to that, I, it's so apparent too. Um, so, you know, for the listeners out there, um, Professor Noah, um, was actually um, my daughter's coach uh, when we first started. Uh, she first started in jujitsu um, at Ricardo Almeida, and uh, you were the coach there for the uh, for the kids program. And man, I, I know I've said it uh, to you before, uh, and I, I'm sure my wife has. But we all kind of it, it, it was like you were born to do that job, Noah. I mean, you were so good with the kids. They they respond to you so well, and it was quite obvious that you had a you. 
You know how some people cannot talk to, to little kids? They don't know how to. Some adults are bad at that. Um, and you, I mean, you were able to come down to their level, and it was just so apparent that you were doing exactly what you should have been doing, uh, at least to, to us. I was like, man, this, this guy was born to you know, work with kids. And so I, I like that you said you feel called to that because it's really apparent. You can tell when someone is doing what they're passionate about, and, and it always, you know, that came through with you. And I was going to say, Noah, I personally think that we will, uh, as the weather's warming up and as we're starting to, you know, people are putting dates on calendars now about opening up. That's, that's always a positive sign. I know it's a, you know, moving target, like you said, but I think we'll be starting to do that, starting to come out here. And I personally think that people will be really ready to get back into doing those things, especially as I think, I I don't look, and I don't know, I'm not an expert, like I said, in the last, um, podcast with me and chunks i do i have been following the situation and i think i know more than most not as much as i could um but it's going to be with us right there's only uh, when we do start to come out it's not like the virus is gone it's still there uh, most yeah. of us are going to get this at some point <laughs> um so I, you know who wants to who wants to spend the rest of their life in you know in indoors and, and not enjoying life uh, there is if, if we're all going to die i i would i want to live you know, yeah. before that, right? Life before death. And I mean that in the metaphorical sense, you have to live. We, we, we're not meant to be doing what we're doing right now. On no. the other hand, I do understand that we are, um, we are trying not to overload our, our, our healthcare system. And that is important. Yeah. And we are making some trade-offs there. I think that you are going to find that when you get that business plan going again, that you will have a lot of people coming your way. So. Well, from your lips to God's ears for sure. You know, and uh, you know, it's, because I, you know, it's uh, like you, like like I said before, it's uh, I think it's a lot of unknowns for sure. But um, I do think people will, you know, people generally I notice have um, short memories, you know, when it comes to these bad things. Um, and I think people once we start getting into that, um, you know, let's face, we're in New Jersey, you know, that that first fifteen minutes back at work, everybody's going to be like this and hey, how's it going? And so good to see you. That sixteenth minute. People are going to be right back to their completely stressed out selves yep. and, you know, working 12 hour days, you know, and they're going to forget all about this stuff. And, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it has been, I, I do a lot of listening, you know, on face. I don't make a lot of comments on what's going on. I've been doing a lot of listening and, um, it, it's, uh, again, you know, I, I, um, I brought the subject up before about it. Um, I'm using this time to, you know, look, look in the mirror and see, you know, where I've, where I've missed some things. Um, but I'm also using it as a lens to look at uh, other folks. Because, you know, when we're in these crisis situations, um, things come out, you know, uh, good and bad. And it really tests. It's a, it's a test in many ways. You know, I, when I look at um, some of the critiques, and look, I'll tell you, I'm a coach. My wife's a coach. Um, you know, we're broke. And, you know, who knows how our field is going to open back up. And, you know, a couple months ago, uh, you could get a job for 15 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour and survive, you know, uh, pretty easily with 3% unemployment, 4% unemployment. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear. I mean, so we feel as I'm saying, you know, we're in it with everybody else. And it is interesting to see the algorithms that people are using to, to think about this, you know, and it's, um, you know, it's like how many people, like how many lives uh, are we going to save and what's it worth to us? 
Yeah, that's um, right. You know, and we have to really ask ourselves, you know, it's a, and it's, and sometimes I'll be frank. Sometimes I hear some really troubling things. You know, I hear a lot of uh, like social Darwinistic type, uh, you know, you know, people are saying, well, you know, the weak are going to die. You know, it's if, if, if 10 million people have to die to maintain the American way of life, fine, you know, let them die. And, um, to me, I feel like that's the opposite of patriotism. Uh, for me, when I think of patriots, uh, I hear people bring up, uh, um, the patriots of the past during this and the rights they fought for us. And I feel like, um, yes, the patriots uh, who fought, died, struggled in all in, in all manner of ways for this country. To me, what what they really did was sacrifice for us. And I would, and that's a shame. I don't I don't know who there is who have, would have the moral authority uh, to do this. But we we need someone to stand up who is uh, above repute. And, and develop a national call to patriotism. And what does that really mean? Well, you know what? That means victory gardens. You know, that means taking a kick in the nuts for your neighbor, you know? And, um, you know, uh, that I, would, I wish there was somebody right now. I don't feel um, that we have a somebody in leadership right now that is sort of um, respected by all. I guess you would say, and but I, but somehow, you know, when we were attacked at Pearl Harbor, it was a unifying moment, and I, I look at that time, and there was a call to patriotism and to sacrifice, and and it's, of course, you know, I'm looking back through the, through a lens I didn't live through it, but it seemed like every corner of society was mobilized to fight the Nazis, to fight the the Japanese. And, you know, it seemed like every corner, and it wasn't even a question whether it was, it was not whether or not you were going to sacrifice. The question is, how much could you possibly sacrifice? That was the test of patriotism. And um, I I, I wish, I I haven't heard that at all yet. And, you know, I'll be frank with you. I've tried to stay off of uh, TV news. Uh, you know, it does, it's not good for my brain. I read, I read, you know, New York Times, Washington Post. Um, you know, I get the bulwark uh, sent to me. So, which is more conservative. Uh, Washington Post is more, I would say, is more on a liberal side, uh, at least op-ed wise, that's for sure. Yeah. So I try and get a balance and it's less sensationalistic. But I keep waiting for that. And I wonder, in our country, I wonder, we have gone so far to... My rights, my rights, my rights. And I, it's so rare I hear, you know, my responsibility, my responsibility, my responsibility. You know, I, I don't know uh, where those lines are. I know it's incredibly blurry. And for everybody, those are something different. But it would, I, I would like to hear uh, more of the, you know, I'm going to wear this mask for you. My, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stay at home for you. I'm going to. I'm going to struggle for you. And I think that's what patriotism is. And, and the, the shocking thing to me is the disconnect, I think, between responsibility, meaning, patriotism. Um, to me, those things are, it's, it's, those are all, those are, they all go together. And, you know, those, you know, I, I, and I go back, I, uh, I try to hear really, you know, there's folks, you see them, they have that 3% thing on their car. And I guess they think they were going to be the 3% that 
that followed George Washington around with their feet wrapped in rags. Um, uh, you know, starving to death in Valley Forge. You know, that's sacrifice. And I, and I wonder, you know, those people who say they would be that 3%, um, and then at the same time, they're complaining about the fact that they have to, you know, they can't work for a month. I say, wait a minute, seven years, you know, not knowing, you know, risking your life, your family's lives, you know, uh, seven years sacrifice for this country, seven years. And, and, and I, and we're crying about a month of in our house watching Netflix mm. and it's, um, it's a, it's so telling. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous lens. It shows you how soft we are. It shows you how um, little we're willing to sacrifice. How, um, how. It's like we don't believe we're resilient. We don't know we're resilient. And you know, if you've lived an easy life, uh, you probably don't know that you're resilient. And 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 you know what? Thank God for that. You know, if you've never really been kicked in the nuts, um, you know, maybe you don't know you can take a kick in the nuts. You know, and I, and I say that because, you know, when my, I've had a bad back most of my life. When I was 12, it started to hurt. When I was 24, I blew it out. Uh, it, it was so bad, I couldn't feel my feet. I had electricity shooting down both legs. I would describe it as a post-surgical level of pain. If you've ever been cut in the middle, uh, you'll know the kind of pain I went through between the ages of 24 and 32. Um, literally could not walk more than a couple steps could not stand for a couple seconds i couldn't go to the mall i couldn't go to the movie because i couldn't i couldn't stand in line long enough to get the ticket that's how bad my back was and and yet i still got up every day and went to work in spite of that kind of crushing pain and it wasn't just physical of course it's psychological because you know man you know i really revere you because in many ways you accomplished what i wanted to accomplish i wanted to be a freedom fighter you know i wanted to be a defender and uh, that's who you are. And uh, when my black back blew out when I was 24, um, that's remended for me. I, I had just graduated college. I graduated college in May. I blew my back out in October. And uh, I still had that dream of being a freedom fighter at that point. And I was young enough to still do it. And, uh, you know, I was healthy and I was in great shape. I mean, I could do 30 pull-ups. I could, you know, run a six-minute mile. I mean, I was at the time, I was a real stud uh, and ready to go. I mean, I would have gone in. And I was signed up right away for some sort of, uh, for, frankly, I wanted to be uh, infantry. You know, I wanted, to, I wanted to be one of those cool guys with the, the green faces, yep. you know. And um, not to say I would have made it, not to say I, I was tough enough to do that, um, but that was, that was my dream. So at 24, I was facing uh, excruciating pain. I was the loss of a lifelong dream. You know, my family has been in the military since the Revolutionary War. Um, uh, Colonel Parker at the Battle of Lexington is a descendant of mine. And so I grew up with this patriotic uh, feeling. And, uh, you know, my mom was a teacher in the worst neighborhood of Chicago. The, and so I grew up, you know, I saw that as being a defender. You know, my father served in the Army uh in the Vietnam era, you know, my, my grandfather, World War II, you know, just like a lot of people in this country, World War One. I, I mean, you just go back, Civil War, every, every war, you know, and I felt like, you know what, I come from freedom fight, freedom fighting stock, I come from defending stock, and I saw, I felt like I thought, I, that was all gone at the age of 24, and, and, and my vision of how I was going to be a patriot, and how I was going to be a defender had to change at that point. 
And uh, but it was a, it was a long uh, it was a long uh, eight nine years where uh, I was working twice as hard and accomplishing ten percent as much. And I was watching my friends who, you know, maybe I'm not their equal, but I they I was watching my friends become engineers and doctors and scholars and PhDs and and uh, and becoming freedom fighters and doing you know doing these amazing things. Uh, but this constant, this constant pain, um, just, it, it, it stopped me dead in my track. So, um, like, you know, I've been down and out, you know, I've, I've been hopeless. And, but what I know about myself, interestingly enough, because of that is I know that I can keep moving forward without hope, which is a strange thing to know about yourself. Like, I don't even need hope of success. I can just keep going. I can just put myself in a position, face the direction I want to go in, and just somehow just keep going. And um, so, you know, I, I've been kicked in the nuts, you know, uh, and I, bought, I fought my way out of it, you know. And, and, and just when I got my, if I may continue, just when I got my back surgery at 32. Uh, so at 32, I get this back surgery, and it's a whole new life. I mean, I knew it right away. I came home from the hospital within a week. I mean, I was still in a lot of pain. Don't get me wrong. You know, you're on a lot of meds, but you're not morphine anymore. But I remember standing in my driveway, uh, looking up at the stars, and I'm holding a cane, and I could feel my, my look. I was in a lot of pain; it was post-surgical pain. But I could feel, but my back felt better. If you can believe that, a week after spinal fusion, you know, two weeks after spinal fusion, that I was cutting the front, and I was cutting the back. I had six-inch titanium rods in both of them, half a dozen screws. Um, it was gnarly, man. And, but some, but I knew standing in my driveway, there was a new life because I could feel the structure of my back that had integrity. Uh, it's a weird thing to say. It's, it's a weird thing to describe, but going from the position where it, it, my back continually got worse and worse and worse and worse for 20 years. And now they had actually pulled, uh, what happened to my back was it was, it broke and the vertebrae slid forward. So it was, it was hanging off. It was half hanging off. There was a big, there was a big bone sticking out of my back where you could see it. It was, it was really, really nasty. So I went from 20 years of constantly getting worse to all of a sudden, bam, this is a new life, you know? And so it, it, gave, me this, it gave me this thing, which is the worst thing uh, while you're gaining it, but it is the greatest treasure. It's perspective, you know? And I know almost nobody went through that in their twenties that I know, you know, some people do God bless them, you know, but not too many people know what that's like to lose your, lose your, the things that you're the best at. You know, I was a physical guy, you know, I was an athlete. I was a, not a great athlete, but I was a physical guy. Uh, I worked out every single day. My, my ego, you know, my, my sense of myself uh, centered around my physical competence. And, uh, and I was a nice guy, you know, I was a nice guy. And when you're in that kind of pain, you're not a nice guy anymore. I wasn't. I was a mean person. Uh, I was angry. I was depressed. Yeah. I was anxious. I was not a good person during those eight years. And, and, and you know, I uh, specifically lost touch with almost all of my friends, you know, during that time. I, I was ashamed of myself during that time. And I knew it was obvious to anybody who knew me before I was 24 that I was now uh, a totally different person. I mean, crippled in so many ways, you know. And, uh, but then here I am at 32. Now, 32, I've got my health back. 
But remember, 32, that's 06. I'm a construction manager. I'm thinking, man, and I thought, you know, that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. It's, it's a lot of fun being out there with the guys. I'm sure you, you know the feeling, you know, this camaraderie, you're out in the field. It's, it's hard work. It's stressful. And it's, uh, you're on a team. And I love being on a team. So um, it was, uh, and I lost, my, I lost my career. So here I've got my health, and I just lost my career. I mean, what a turnaround, you know? It was crazy. So um, here, that's the second kick in the nuts comes. You know, 14 years working. It, you know, some guys, it doesn't take that long to develop into that position, but that's how long it took me, you know? It, it was, it, it's, it's hard. It's a good job. It's hard getting, you know, you get, I mean, you're in construction, and you got benefits, you know, and you get bonuses, and you're stocks you get you know what i mean it's like it's just it's this cool thing right and then uh boom gone and the economy's 10 percent unemployment in new jersey now yes i have a degree from the college of new jersey which is a phenomenal school but it's in fine arts you know it's not like you can just go and there's no ad in the paper for fine artists yep. you know so i had to there was my opportunity to totally reinvent myself and um that's that's what i've been doing for 14 years and and here I am, you know, I feel I'm faced with that situation again. But because I've gone through it before, because I've got my health, number one, like I can stand and walk all day long now. Now, most people wouldn't even consider that as being a gigantic advantage in life. But when you, go on, when you uh, have an injury where you've got to have a sit-down job, you know, you can't, take, you can't take a job that requires you to drive hours and hours a day because, you know, the driving is hell on your back. Yeah. And you can't take a job that requires you to stand at a booth or a table, you know, for eight hours or something like you just can't do that. All of a sudden, like you got 10% unemployment, you've got a fine art degree, your, your expertise is in construction, really. And there's no construction jobs. And it's like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's crazy. It really is crazy. So, um, I've been in worse spots before, man. I know a lot of people haven't. And I know for, for them, um, they might not be comfortable um, reinventing themselves. And I, I couldn't blame them because, man, if I was – I'm 46. And if I had spent the last 20 years developing a very specific skill set that I was afraid was no longer going to be valuable, and, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a, you know, an elite in the, my field. Maybe I'm the top couple percent in my field. Now the field's disappeared. Um, where do you go from there? You know, uh, if you're, if you've got a mortgage, you know, if you're highly leveraged, you know, I've got a pretty small mortgage. Uh, my cars are paid off my no student loans, uh, you know, credit card debt zero, you know, so I'm in a position where I've got a very small financial footprint, which I've done on purpose over the last, uh, since because I've been kicked in the nuts before because I knew I might, I'm very comfortable with the idea that, um, this might not not comfortable, but I'm confident that um, you know I can survive this. I can go work at Taco Bell if I have to. Uh, I can get two jobs. You know, if I have to work 16 hours a week at a job that maybe doesn't pay what I'm used to, maybe pays half of what I'm used to. I know I can work. I know I can work 16 hours a day because I did it before when I was in college and I worked full time during the day, six days a week during construction, and then at night went and took classes. So I know I can work, you know, I've done it before, you know, and uh, I know I can, uh, I know I can study and I can teach myself things because I've done it before. And I know I can, uh, I know I can, I know I'm resilient. And I know there's always something I can do to make my situation better. So, um, 
that, you know, that, that's what I'm focusing on right now. You know, when, I, when I'm in these dark moments, I remind myself, Noah, all four of your children's grandparents are alive right now. You know, I remind myself that um, you've got a degree, you've got a trade, you've actually got a couple of trades now because I'm a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt under one of the legends of our sport. Yep. I've taught at the, one of the, literally one of the best schools in the entire world, probably top 1%. That's not uh, hyperbole. I, the data shows it. Top 1% school in the entire world. I have taught there full time for years. You know, uh, I've learned under the absolute best. So I have, a, I have a couple trades now, you know, I know I can, I know I can ease the suffering of people who come to me with a bad back and bad knees and a bad neck. I know I can eat that. There are always going to be people who suffer and suffer with chronic physical ailments. And I know I am, I, I'm what top 1% at that. I'm actually a lead at that, you know. Um, there's always going to be that. So it might not look like it used to look. I might not have my own room. I might not be training 150 people in the morning and then go at night and have 75 kids who I'm coaching at jiu-jitsu. You know, it might not look like that anymore. But, you know, I was serving 225 people, you know, just a year ago before my son was born, before I had to stop, you know, dial back to jiu-jitsu coaching. But I was serving 225, uh, two, 250 people. Uh, that, you know, and, um, you know, I don't know if it's going to look like that again, but I know that there was a need a month ago for that. And I knew, I know people were hungry for things that I could give them a month ago. So, you know, maybe I'll serve 20 people in the future. You know, maybe I'll, you know, have a, a full scale gym in my garage. Now, you know, four, have more. I, 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 I'm almost certain of that. Um, so you know, so that's, but again, that's that perspective that getting kicked in the nuts, yeah. you know, will give you. And uh, so I, man, I, I just keep, does, I, I feel low sometimes, man, because I feel like, you know, when I was in college, I came this close to becoming an art teacher. And, you know, if I had an art teacher job now, I'd be 20 years in, man, I'd be top of the pay scale. If I was in West Windsor, Plainsboro, I'd be making probably six figures with full benefits you know, I'd be t I could retire with, God, I mean, God, the pension, those guys, I mean, they're going to have to scale it back. But, I mean, the pensions people are finishing with now who, who, who are at the top, you know, I mean, summer's off. The p teachers get pissed off when you say that. But I used to teach. I taught for four years. Your summer's off. I know they're off because you're not showing up at 7 in the morning and you're not doing lesson plans till 8 at night. So if summer isn't off for you, that means you weren't really doing your job during the school year, you know, because you're, 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 Hours shrink pretty, pretty I drastic. The, I can see the uh, comments from teachers out there. Yeah. I taught for four years, so I, I, I have a right. That's right. Yep. So they can't say that. So look, now look, some teachers, if you teach in Camden, you know what? That sucks. You know, I'm talking about the teachers who are in Princeton, West Princeton, Plainsboro, Allentown. It's a great gig. It's a great gig. And if you don't think it's a great gig, you should quit tomorrow because you don't deserve it. It's not your calling. You know, it's, uh, my mom was a teacher. She made two grand a year. She taught in the, she taught in, uh, the Cabrini Green projects, which are still the worst in the country. And I think they tore them down actually. They, they, they were so bad. I believe they tore them down. Uh, now they have new projects there. Um, you know, and she tells me the story about driving kids. She's white. My mom's white. My dad's white. She tells me stories about putting, piling kids in the back of their car and driving them through the ghetto on the night Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. You know, there were riots, 
you know, going on. And uh, that's a teacher. You know, that's a calling, you know. So my mom wasn't, my mom didn't get involved as a teacher because of the pension and because she was going to have 10 weeks off in the summer so she could have a short house, which, you know, I've got a million teacher friends. When I was in college, that's all everybody was talking about. I mean, you know, oh, we're going to have our 10 weeks off in the summer. We're going to have a beach house. You know, it's going to be a great life, you know. And, you know, yes, some of them get pissed off when they show up and they realize it's a real job and you got to really work hard. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like this, it's not like it's free money. You know, you got to work your ass off, you know. But you compare, you know, what my mother's expectations of being a teacher was or were compared to people graduating college to, today. You know, teachers expect to be rich today. Now, if, if you, if two teachers at the top of the space scale, you're making 200, in West Windsor Plainsboro, your household's making 200 grand a year. You know, I mean, and I'm not saying you don't deserve it, but I'm just saying this is, you literally are making four times the average family in the country at your household, plus the benefits, plus the pension, plus, plus it's 180 days a year. You have every weekend off if you want it. Um, it's a completely different thing, you know? So, um, I've, 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 no, I'm glad you well, I kick myself sometimes. Yeah, no, so no, anyways, no. I kick myself. I'm like, oh man, no, you could have your art room. You could be, you could all the same stuff I talk about as jujitsu and kindness and stuff like that. I could be talking about there. Um, so I have those dark moments, man. I have those dark moments where I look at myself and I say, oh no, you dropped the ball. You know, you know, no, I even said you're, you're a physical guy and you, and you looked at yourself in that, in that way, right. Um, through, uh, being in shape and being the kind of guy that was active. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, uh, that, uh, the universe has put you where you need to be and you're set up real well, you know, so much in that too. I mean, you, you, you talked, uh, a, a lot about reinventing yourself. And I, I love that, man. As a matter of fact, I'm one of those guys that I, I have to reinvent myself. Uh, that was one good thing about the military is that, yeah, I, I mean, you're still in the Marine Corps, uh, but every three years you get moved somewhere. Uh, and you take a different job, a different position, basically. Yeah, I was a pilot. So uh, I, I always, most of the time I knew what I was going to be, you know, flying and I would probably be at a squadron. But I took a lot of different positions in the Marine Corps that weren't the traditional route. And I like that reinventing myself every time I went somewhere else. Uh, and I get stir crazy if I don't reinvent myself. My, my wife knows this about me. So, and it's funny because you mentioned you like being a part of a team and, uh, and, and I, I've talked about this on the show before. I, I, I hate being a part of a team and I spent 24 years in the Marine Corps. <laughs> so yeah. Wife, the ultimate team. yeah, she's like, man, you, you, how did you end up in the Marine Corps bar? You're the, the, the most individual libertarian. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, because I was the same way. I wanted a challenge and, um, and boy, I loved the idea of, uh, of, uh, of putting myself in positions where I was going to be, uh, where it would be life and death. And I, I still am like that. Um, so I, I, I just sought that out. And then I stayed in, you know, through sheer dogged determination, although I did have a, a point where I got out for a bit and then went back in uh, when the war was ramping up, um, when we were really fully invested in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, um, you know, my buddy called and he was like, hey, you know, the, the reserves are looking for people right now to, to come back. And I was like, yep, I'm there, man. So I left this job that I was, I was flying for a charter company in Nashville um, and, uh, and and went back in so that I could, uh, you know, go to war. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, okay, now's the time. But, uh, but, you know, and then after that, I just stayed in because, you know, um, 
it, it was what I knew and, uh, and, and it's put me in a good position, but yeah, I, I think it's funny when you, when you start to talk about these things that you had in the past and, 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 uh, and talking about the different ways in which, you know, life has diverged you. Uh, I freaking love that. That kind of story is, um, uh, you're, you're right. A lot of people don't have that. And I kind of feel badly for people that haven't been challenged, kicked in the nuts, like you say, uh, because, um, boy, that it, perspective is what you said. And that is exactly right. Uh, I've been on a real thing. I've been on a kick lately with this because I, we, and talking about how we've been dealing with the COVID and, uh, you know, different forms of patriotism. What is being a patriot in this time, you know, and what does that look like? It's different for everybody. Right. Um, but, but, uh, one of the things I, I keep saying is that you have to have, you have to have the joy, uh, the sorrow to have joy. You, you won't, you can't understand joy if you don't understand sorrow. And so perspective is, is just, you know, key in that, man. I, and I'm listening to you. I can sense, no, I can sense that, that sort of, uh, that uncertainty that you have right now, but what's going to happen, you know, ah, man, it's happened to me before. Am I about to get kicked in the, you know, in the nuts again, you know, and have to, um, but I, I, I really do think this is a little bit, this is different. You know, this situation is not one that we've, um, you know, we, Yes, it's we're we're banding together to try and do the right thing, and hopefully we are doing the right thing. And uh, but but it's not like you know being attacked by a by a people, an enemy for for once. Gosh, that's great. I mean, we, yeah. we can band together and, and while not having to uh, go, you know, kill our our fellow man. Um, I'm, although I'm, you know, there'll be more of that, I'm sure. But I, I, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's it's a little bit different. I think that as we come out of this, I don't I don't think you're going to have. Uh, I think people are going to go, are, are really going to be looking to do the exact same thing. And, and obviously, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has become so popular. I mean, we haven't even t- begun to touch on that. You know, you mentioned you were at, thir- at 32. You got this, re- um, this release on life, right? And uh, this new lease. And, and, but you lost your job at the construction firm. At, at what point did you go, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go try to, be a, to learn some Jiu-Jitsu? Well, um, all right. So, uh, huge fan of MMA, you know, I've still got, um, every VHS that the UFC ever produced up in my attic. I don't have a VCR. I just can't bear to throw them away. You know, I have all these old pride, uh, VHSs too. So I was like, you, you should convert those by the way. You know what? I have them. I I'm a member of the UFC, uh, uh, website. Well, I forget what it is, yeah, 10 bucks a month, eight bucks. Yeah. I got them all on digital, it's, you know. And um, so I um, I was always interested in martial arts. You know, I have that the part of that warrior ethos we talked about before. I always wanted to be a freedom fighter. And uh, but I grew up in Allentown, little town. I mean, there was no martial arts anywhere around. And uh, really, as a kid, uh, it was a great place to grow up in Allentown. And uh, I had access to I could, anywhere in town I could ride my bike, I could go. It was a great time. And by the way, for listeners, he's not talking about Allentown, Pennsylvania. No. Uh, which Allentown, is New Jersey. a big city uh, that definitely would have some martial arts. No, Allentown, New Jersey. It's a tiny right. uh, Victorian uh, New yep. Jersey town. Y- yes, it, it, Colonial, actually, 1706. Colonial, right, yeah, that's right. So it's a very old town. Um, so anyway, uh, I had limited access to martial arts growing up in a little town. So when I got a little older, uh, excuse me. I was um, so. This is what happened. I'll start. I'll start to begin my martial arts career. I was uh, working in Trenton. I was coordinating a small alternative school, 
And the alternative school, what we did was half the day we taught the GED, and the other half the day we taught job skills. So I was still in the trades, uh, but I was in the community. I was uh, working with gang members. I was, almost everybody I worked with had either a uh, parole officer or um, usually a parole officer or a probation officer. They some sort of a PO, some sort of uh, court supervision. That's why they came to me, because uh, either their grandma dropped them off or a PO dropped them off. That's usually the kids I had, right? So it, just, just like you, you like to be in life and death situations. Uh, I get a big juice out of doing something that uh, most people can't do or are afraid to do or won't do. And uh, so I got a big juice being around these kids who um, had a real opportunity to save some kids' lives, you know, and uh, literally, change, you know, save some kids' lives, you know. And so that's what I was doing at the time. So one of my coworkers was a accomplished Shaolin Kung Fu teacher. And so, uh, so I was going back. I always, I, I'm very interested in Buddhism. Uh, I've always had it. You know, I love the, the Shaolin Kung Fu movies. Uh, I grew up on Kung Fu theater. And so, you know, I met this guy. I said, oh, man, this is, I got to do this. Now, I didn't do it right away, though. Uh, you know, I, for whatever reason, I just didn't pull the trigger on it. And I ended up getting into a, a, a barroom brawl. And uh, everything was okay. I ended up okay. But I realized in the fight that I was a one-handed fighter. I realized that I really only had a right hand. And, um, you know, I was, if the guys, I, were, I, I fought several guys at once. And um, if they weren't drunk, I would, have been, I would have had my butt handed to me. Thank God they were drunk and I was 100% sober. So, uh, you know, that was a big advantage I had. But I knew at the end of this situation uh, how easily... I could have been really mangled, you know, and of course, you know, a normal person would just say, okay, no, don't go places where there are large numbers, but when don't hang out with an entire football team that's falling down drunk, you know, because uh, that's what happened. I ended up fighting the, the college, the, my, the college in New Jersey. Uh, the whole football team was in there one night. It was like the last, it was like the last game or something. So they were really tuned up. And uh, when I got there and so, you know, a smart person would just say, no, you know, if you don't go places where people are drunk, your chances of getting into a fight are probably 0%, right? I mean, that's, that's reality when you're an adult. Um, but I was, whatever. That didn't go through my mind. I was still interested in going to bars. So I was single, and I was still interested in going to bars. So my strategy was become a better fighter. And uh, so that's, you know, when I signed up for this stuff. And uh, didn't work out. The teacher ended up being a real weirdo, real weirdo. Um probably wouldn't pass the me too uh you know he, he you know he hit on me and it was a it was the first time i ever felt you know uh felt that experience where that women probably feel all the time where they have a boss that hits on them or somebody in charge of them puts them in an uncomfortable situation it was horrible it, it was just i mean i'm a grown man you know i'm a, it was horrible i mean I, and, and i developed some empathy for what it would feel like when you're in a trusting situation and that person uh, betrays that by trying to take advantage of your trust you know so I left that pretty quick and I was oh I was pretty much done with martial arts at that point because it was such a negative experience I'm like it was like a, it was, you know it was look it was Shaolin Kung Fu you're bowing all the time you're bowing to the master you're bowing to a shrine there's all this there's all this stuff set up. Yeah, the mysticism around that. That's right. Uh, very 
uh, you're, you're right. I find that odd too. Uh, Very odd. And, and it just, of course, it just uh, opens up the door for all kinds of abuses, which we know happens, right? And uh, so I was out of there. I felt icky, icky and dirty. And, and here, I, here I work with the guy who, who is his number one protege. I tell him about what happened. He's like, well, you know, blah, 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 you know, so who knows what was going on there. But I was out of that. It was just, it was so ugly. So anyway, I was out of that. A friend of mine, a good, good friend of mine who I went to college with, uh, had, be, had become a very proficient teacher uh, of martial arts, uh, Jeet Kundo. She taught at Prince, yeah, Prince Bruce Lee's art. Uh, she taught at Princeton Academy of Martial Arts. And she was a good bud of mine. So, you know, I went there. I trained there for two years at that point. I just, you know, and I had a lot of fun. Uh, but it was all striking for the most part for me. It was Jeet Kune Do, it was Muay Thai, it was Kali, which is a really cool art with stick fighting and knife fighting. I'd like to do that again someday. Um, they did some French savat. They did, it was a lot of different arts. So it was a lot of fun. You could experience a lot of things. They also had this thing they called mixed grappling. And the first time I did it, the first time I choked somebody out for the first time, I knew that's what I really needed to do. I knew I needed to choke people out the rest of my life. And the reason was, is, you know, punching pad. I knew I, in a, in a, as a striking art, I knew I was never going to get into a ring and uh, be a professional fighter. My goal was to never fight a single fight the rest of my life, you know, be able to walk away, you know, have the eyes to see danger coming. And uh, so, but with grappling, with submission grappling, you're really doing it. You're doing it 99% intensity. You know, you, you only stop at the moment where something bad is going to really really happen. And at that point, it's a done deal, right? So that satisfaction of reality, uh, it, man, it, it got me. And I knew that I was a grappler. I, I had wrestled a little bit, but I'd never done submission grappling. I had never, I had never really sunk in a choke or an arm bar. And uh, especially chokes, you know, chokes are real, especially, you know, and I knew that in there, that was the real stuff. I needed to do that. And, uh, but they were not really equipped as to, to take me where I wanted to go. Now, this, but I hung in there for a little bit. Now we're getting back to pride. My, my, how, how I begun the story. I was a huge pride fighting. Are you familiar with pride? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. okay. So Ricardo Almeida is a pride fighter. I knew him through pride. And so I started looking around on the internet, uh, and I, and uh, I know it was 14 years ago. So, uh, Oh five, I guess this probably was Oh five fall of Oh five and, uh, 15 years ago. So 14, 15 years ago. So, uh, I'm looking, uh, the only jujitsu I know is Gracie Baja. So I start, I Google Gracie Baja. There's one like an hour away. There's no real trusted lineage of anybody teaching Brazilian jujitsu really within 45 minutes or an hour from me. Right. Um, there's some, it, in, two, in 2005, a blue belt was considered a big deal. If you were an adult and you're a blue belt, a, a bona fide blue belt, like a competition guy in blue belt, you could be a teacher. You could, you could start a school practically. You know, you could go and that's what they did. You know, they'd go to karate schools and they teach classes there and stuff like that. It was, it was a really big deal. So here comes Ricardo. I find Ricardo Almeida. I think, I believe he moved into the area about a month before I found him, a couple weeks. It was literally like that. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You know, Ricardo Almeida. So this is what I did. So the next day I called the school uh, and I say, is this Ricardo Almeida, the same Ricardo Almeida that fought in pride? And they were like, yes. And I say, 
This is the same Hamilton, New Jersey that's next to Yardville. I literally, that's why I said, I said, that's the same place. They said, yes. I said, okay, great. You know, cool. Thank you very much. So my wife and I, we drive down there. I'm in Allentown. It's, you know, it's 17 minutes away. So we drive around, we drive around the back. Uh, it's over on South Broad Street. It's this little sliver of a, of a, of a, of a, of a storefront, like a standalone building. We drive around the back. And I see I, the doors open, and I see a bunch of you know, guy, you know, big sweaty guys with cauliflower ears standing at the doorway. And I, I think I, I'm pretty sure I see Ricardo there. And so I, I say, I'm jumping out. So I jump out of the car and run over there, and you know, interrupt everything. You know, big, I'm a big loud mouth. I'm a bull in China shop wherever I go. You know me. And I'm like, Are you Ricardo Almeida? And he's like. You know, yes. <laughs> Who is this lunatic? Who is this sweaty lunatic? You know, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, when's my first lesson? You know. And um, so that week, I still have the I still have the business card uh, with the with the date of my and the time of my uh, first intro lesson in my wallet. I've carried around with me since then. It means that much to me. Yeah. And. Um, my wife is in the background. She's hearing me talk and she's laughing at me because she knows what a lunatic I am. And um, the guy who gave me my very first lesson wasn't, wasn't Ricardo Almeida, but it was a Gracie Baja legend. One of the guys who basically invented the half guard. I'm, I kid you not. And I'm like, I am in the right place. You know, I am in the right place. Now, this is the crazy thing you should know about this time period of my life. This is fall of 2005. This is about nine months before I'm going to get my back surgery. So my back is at its worst, right? And I can't stand. I can't, you know, I just, you know, I'm looking at this, this, you know, I made the decision where, you know, Ricardo, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you can do while you're laying on the ground. So I thought, all right, I'm not going to be much of a stand-up fighter. I can't stand, you know, anymore. So I'm going to, I'm going to give this a go. And I said to myself, Noah, you, you weren't able to become a freedom fighter. You wanted to do that. Your back, you blew your back out when you were 24. You lost your chance, you know, of doing the thing you really wanted to do in life. And still to this day, I will tell you, it'll be, it'll be a hole in my heart till the day I die that I wasn't able to fulfill that. I, I, I just, I sense that. Um, it is today. Um, so that was in me, you know, and I was like, I don't want to have, you know, I don't, I just, I don't want to feel that feeling again. I don't want to have a long list of these dreams, that I wasn't able to pursue, you know what I mean? Or I didn't try to pursue, you know, maybe if I just would have died in boot camp, I would be a little more satisfied, you know, I wouldn't have the hole, you know, but I, you know, couldn't even really see myself walking in combat boots and carrying a rucksack, you know, I mean, I don't know if I could have done that with my back being the way it was, because it's a lot of rucking, you know, <laughs> obviously, right? Oh, a lot of rucking, especially if you're going to yeah, be, it, it would have, your back would have, yeah. <laughs> it's exploded, right? Because yeah. uh, guys with healthy backs, their backs are just killing them, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm in deep, and I, but I say to myself this. I say, Noah, if, if this is the last thing you – if, if this is the last thing you ever do physically, then, you know, at least well, at least what will happen is – and I figured this would be the case. I figured, you know what? You go until you died, basically. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't roll yourself out on the mat anymore. But what you – but – what this would buy you is this. It would buy you those moments when you're, when you're 40 pounds overweight with a clicker in your hand and you're lazy boy watching the fights on Saturday night and you see Ricardo Almeida's in the corner of Frankie Edgar and you could say, 
you could feel the feeling that, you know what, you trained on the mats where the best in the world train. You weren't the best in the world. You couldn't hang with the best, but you trained on the same mats. You trained, they were five feet from you, and you were trained by the best in the world. And, you know, when you're just an average guy, it's not that easy to gain access to the best coaches in the world. Unless you're rich, you know, you can buy your way in anything. But, uh, you know, a guy like Ricardo, you know, most of the time, he only wants to deal with, you know, the best in the world. You know, Ricardo's a special guy. You know, he's willing to deal with, he's willing to teach the kids class. You know, he enjoys, he loves teaching the kids. If you ever see him teach a kids class, you know how much he loves it. So, you know, it's not all about the fame and the glory. It's, it's you know, he had, a, it's a love of jujitsu. And, you know, everybody loves coaching the best in the world. I mean, I, I realize as a coach right away, it's all anybody ever wants to do. You know, but those people who love coaching the average person, the, the person who, who can see the glory in progress from wherever it starts, you know, I think it's a special person. So um, that's how I ended up with Ricardo. And, um, you know, so nine months, you know, uh, April of that year, my wife, my wife had a situation where we had to go to the emergency room. And so I sat in the emergency room chair for like eight hours. And uh, I could never get right after that. That was at April. Uh, I couldn't get right. Uh, not even as right as I was before. Like I couldn't stand at all. <laughs> you know, I mean, I felt, well, I felt, well, now I'm going to finally have to submit to the spinal surgery. Cause you know, the thing about spinal fusion is this, you might end up worse. And after the fusion, there's literally zero they can do for you. Yeah. And, I, and I've, I've um, in the years since, because I've, I've, uh, uh, you know, one of my, uh, my, 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 the job that I made money on, you know, as a coach, had been dealing with people with injuries and, 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 and stopping the process that would necessitate spinal fusion. Yep. You look at the data, 25% of people who get spinal fusion have to get more fusions. And um, for very few people, it actually ends up working the way it's worked for me. I don't know of a single person who has had their lower back fused. And I was a white belt. I had a couple stripes on my belt when I got my back fused. And to go from having a spinal fusion to go on to get a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I don't know anybody. I'm, I'm sure there are other people who have done it. But at 32 to, to – or 33, rather. 33 is when I started again with the fusion. Um, very few people have been able to do that. Um, and that's a testimony to my training partners and my coaches. And I'm a and world-class surgeon and chiropractors and physical therapists and acupuncturists and coaches and – and Russian scientists who wrote textbooks that I studied. And I mean, it's just talk about a village. Um, but uh, that's how, that's, it. man, you know, when you find something that gives you juice, it's, as you well know, it's hard to give it up. And um, I'm not the, I'm not the jujitsu practitioner I want to be, that's for sure. I'll never be able to train like the people who are as good as I want to be. You know, the people who train every day, a couple hours a day. You know, uh, for me, realistically, I probably train uh, – right now I'm not training uh, for a variety of reasons. But, uh, you know, when I was training, when I was teaching, I was there every day and I was coaching, I probably trained uh, in a month as much as those people trained, you know, in a week. Yeah. So I knew my expectations of what I could be in the sport uh, or, or the, the, the art uh, were going to be a lot different than some other folks. But when I discovered – when I started bringing my nephew to the school when he was four – and uh, Professor Max uh, and Professor Pete and Professor Ricardo said, sure, Noah, you can tie the belts on. 
on the kids when your nephew's in class. Um, that's when I realized, wait a minute, there's actually something that I love more than doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's working with little kids doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's a weird thing to realize that you actually love the process of, of teaching even more than the doing. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm one of those people, you know, those who can't do, they teach. But I really feel like it's two different skill sets. And, oh, you know, absolutely is. Right? And there's only been three people in the history of the NBA who have won it as a player and won it as a coach, as a head coach. Three in the entire history of the NBA. So that tells me that, you know, it's, it's, it's a completely different thing. Otherwise, Michael Jordan would have won six championships as a coach. Yeah, that's you know? absolutely right. Right. So, you know, so that was, and, and, I, and um, that was a big turning point for me. But that was a couple years in. I was a, I'm trying to think, was I a purple belt at the time? So I, I, I kind of, you know, trudged my way through, kept up. But, you know, it's not like my back was an 18-year-old's back after I had my back <laughs> fused, you know? Oh, I mean, yeah. I, still, I still had a fused back. It's fused. That's right. It's, yeah, yeah, so it doesn't move. You know, oop, doing an upa is really, I can't upa to save my life. Yeah. And you think that's like, how can you do jujitsu without doing, doing an upa? Well, I'll be frank with you. At 220, if I got a good cross face on you, there, unless, you're, unless you're probably a really, really spectacular athlete, you're not going to get much off an upa on me anyway. So you're going to be doing other things. You know, you're going to be doing neat elbows and stuff like that and hip outs, which is how I changed, which, so I developed a game around it. So, um, you know, but it, it was, you know, at, at Ricardo's, one of the reasons why I keep coming back, uh, I keep coming back to jujitsu is, is, you know, frankly, the love I have for my teachers and my teammates, you know, your teammate, actually teammates come and go a lot, but there's a core group that just stick with it, you know, cause it takes you 10, took me 12 years in my black belt, you know, and that's what it takes most of us. And so, you know, how many people do you know for 10 years? How many more, you know, how many people, uh, it's a team and you're struggling and you're dependent on each other and you hold each other res responsible and accountable at every moment. And, you know, I, I I'll tell you that how many times somebody was training for a world championship it was coming up and they rolled with me, you know, I wasn't helping them prepare for a world championship at all, but they took 10 minute roll with me and they went huffing and puffing. They went sweating. They were just drilling. I wasn't helping. They took time out of preparation to win a world championship to help me, you know? And, uh, I could tell you a, a, there's a, there's a thousand times, 10,000 times where somebody did that. I mean, I've rolled with, Gary Tonin, when he was Gary Tonin already, you know, I've rolled with Gordon Ryan, you know, now he wasn't Gordon Ryan yet, but let me tell you, he was already Gordon Ryan. Yeah. He was like a blue belt and he, I had nothing for this guy, you know? So it's, it's, um, it's such a rare opportunity. Um, if you love jujitsu, um, to be around people who are genuinely generous, yeah. And loving and caring. The generosity that I received at Ricardo's in so many ways, it, 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 it's literally mind-boggling. And, um, you know, I want to be that myself. You know, that's, that's, that's you know, I want to, I, 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 uh, I got to have a lot of faith and I got to watch my mind because, man, I, I want to open that storefront. I want to become as generous as, uh, 
as some of these people who I revere, you know, and, um, it's, it's going to happen. I have confidence. It's going to yeah, happen. It is, man. I, I, I can, I can sense it. And you are generous. Uh, you, you, um, I mean, we can already tell that, uh, you, like I said, you, the, the way you worked with the kids, uh, and, and just that, it, it, like you said, it, it is, it, you feel a passion about it. And I just loved watching you with the kids. Uh, of course, coach Tyler is great with them too. Uh, oh, yeah, uh you know, but, and he's, and he's awesome. Uh, and of, and of course he's super talented young, uh, guy for sure. Right. I mean, so, um, yeah. again, right. A, a blue belt that's, uh, that's on his way. Um, but, but, you know, it is, it is, uh, you know, so Tyler is young and he doesn't have children of his own. Um, so you can tell sometimes that he, that, uh, and, and God bless him. Coach Tyler, if you listen to this, you're, you're, you're freaking awesome. You definitely have developed your voice with all these kids and we love you. Uh, but there is some times where I'm kind of like, you know, where he's, the, the expectation of what they're going to be doing in case yes. of, I'm like, yeah, no, that's actually pretty normal for <laughs> that age i don't yeah. you yeah. know uh so but it, it's good you know and and uh but yes with you it was definitely it, you, and and you have kids and so you know right because your daughter was in there with you so mariah is, was, is mariah still is she still doing it you know what uh it's my fault you know uh since i qu- since i stopped coaching jujitsu you know my wife she uh coaches gymnastics okay so at night that's her job and so for me, I've had the baby since, you know, two, since he was two months old every night. Yeah. And, uh, you know, man, after working all day and then you come home, you got to do the homework with, with Mariah and then you got the baby. He's got to be in bed at seven. Yeah. It's just, I hadn't, hadn't had the, hadn't been able to figure out. I get it, man. That's uh, all good. I, I'm literally, I did. And, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, um, it just, you had that voice because you, you have kids of your own and because for whatever reason, you were just a natural uh, with uh, teaching kids uh, jujitsu, and and you could see that that, that joy on your face. And uh, so I know that your uh, your school is going to do well, and that's that's I, I have full confidence that that's going to be there soon. I really wish. I mean, look, it's isn't that funny when you say, hey, "Yeah, I rolled with these people, man." Um, like even I, I, so I was there at Ricardo Almeida. I actually uh, started there when I was still in the Marine Corps, and I was I think I went for about six months, and for a variety of reasons. Uh, I stopped. And the biggest reason is that I had a uh, C6, C7 uh, uh, disc uh, problem in my neck. Uh, so when you talk about fusion, man, I, we, I was right there. I was, I was uh, getting, I had the first doctor I saw was, was recommending a fusion. Uh, and I was like, Hey man. Um, and I, you know, I asked him about the surgery and of course he told me the same thing. He's going through the throat to get to that thing. Uh, same thing, you know, the, 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 the success rate, is not great. I mean, it's good, but I'm like, you know, and, and I'm like, you know, he's like, yeah. And then, you know, certain amount of patients will actually die. <laughs> and it's like, you know, what, what amount, you know, and he gave me some, you know, asked it, it sounded astronomical, like one in 50,000 chance. And I'm like, one in 50,000. That's, that's, that's better than the lottery. I, I'm not, I'm not doing, you know, I, anyway, I was like, I got to get a second opinion. And fortunately for me, I did, I went down to, uh, um, uh, a really renowned guy in Philadelphia. And he, he was like, Hey Bart, I'm going to tell it to you right now. He goes, I'm all I want to do. It, he, he was so good, man. This, this guy, the way he's talked to me was, was exactly what I needed to hear. The first doctor was a little flaky. I thought uh, this guy was like, Hey Bart, we're about the same age. I got kids too. I get it. You, you, you're worried. You're not gonna be able to put your son on your shoulders and, uh, and have a normal life. You're in the Marine Corps. So you're, you're already 
wondering if that's going to, you know, at the time I was wondering if they were going to medically retire me. I was down for flying for a while. And, and so, um, uh, the, uh, the bottom line is he, he goes, Bart, I cut on people. That's what I do. I'm a surgeon. I'm a spinal surgeon. Uh, that's a huge deal, right? I live to, to do this, to cut on people, just like you live to fly. He goes, and I'm going to tell you, I don't recommend it for you. He goes, I recommend physical therapy. Um, yeah, it, it, it probably will get worse as you get older, but it, right now, you know, I think physical therapy and laying off, uh, you know, some of the physical activities, which of course jujitsu was one of those. Uh, he was like, I think you'll be fine. And I, I am, uh, at this point in time, I'm so glad I went that route. Uh, the, the pain is, uh, almost not there anymore. So it kind of healed itself a little bit. And, uh, awesome. but I have thought about taking it back up. Um, uh, and that's why, you know, I, we, we even talked about that, Yeah, yeah. but I'll tell you, like I, I was, it, it was, it was odd. There were some other reasons that I, um, was, uh, you know, was already kind of thinking about doing something different, but I learned so differently at things. Uh, Noah, like I have to learn in my, like, so I, at 43 years old, I taught myself to play mandolin and guitar. I never had a lesson. I wow. just taught myself. Uh, I always wanted to play an instrument, you know, and, uh, I, and I, I never did. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to start playing. So I picked up a mandolin. I, I told the story before. My wife, I, I had this mandolin in a closet. And she was like, one day, she's like, can I throw this out? You're never going to play it. I was like, yes, I am. She goes, no, you're not. You've been saying that for three years. And that night, I literally picked that thing up, opened up a book, plucked a couple strings, um, and was on my way. Put the book away very shortly afterwards because I realized I, I have an ear for this stuff. And I just started learning. By myself, teaching myself the stuff. Uh, if I can hear a song, I, I can pick it out. Really? Which is one, which is a, 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 you know, a gift that not everybody has. Oh, yeah, that's a great and gift. So I, I did this. But the bottom line is I would not have been able to do lessons, I don't think, you know, in the traditional sense where a guy's teaching me scales and timing and it hasn't, you know, I, I would have been like, ah, teach me how to play Rolling Stones, man. What, what the hell? Yeah. And so I, I – and, and it was the same thing with jiu-jitsu. So I, I'm in this organization, the Marine Corps, where I'm, where it's constantly, you know, one, two, three, one, one, two, three, two, you know, we, we, we PT together in groups. It's all structured. It's, I mean, it's the Marine Corps for crying out loud, right? Uniforms and structure and rank and, and all of that is, is inherent in it. And, and I'm a libertarian of the highest order. So it was all, you know, 24 years of that was, that's why I'm not a general. I'm, <laughs> I, you know, I was barely, you know, getting through, you know, uh, I've got this rebellious streak and it doesn't help to tell your senior officer that he's all fucked up, you know, and no matter how diplomatic you do it. Uh, and I'm not very diplomatic, but when I went there, when I was going to Ricardo, it was that same sort of structure. And I remember at one time being like, Hey, I don't, I, I want to do this a little bit more. Can we, can I come in and work on this? Or what if I want to just come and roll instead of going to the class, you know, because that's where I feel like, I'm, and I was, you know, the really, literally the, the coach there said, no, you can't do that. And I was like, Hmm, okay, maybe I should teach myself jujitsu, but I, I can't. Right. Although I, you know, if I had a partner in a mat, I probably could, I probably could do it, especially with all the freaking online stuff they've got. Well, let me tell you a little secret about yeah, jujitsu. Yeah, okay. Cause I was a wrestler. That was my thing. I, I wrestled yeah. through my youth. Noah. that's why I, that's why it called to me. I was like, Oh yeah. Grappling sport. I mean, I, I wrestled throughout my entire youth. And, um, so I, I have taken, um, you probably be shocked at how few classes I've taken at the school. You'd be shocked. Um, I remember you telling me that one time. Yeah. 
I've always had, I hate to say, it, 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 it's not the way to say it, but I've always had special needs, I guess you'd say, yeah. you know, so, you know, when I came back to, when I started jujitsu, I was a construction manager and, you know, sometimes I worked till 6.30, 7 at night, you know, so it was really hard to get there. You know, I, I don't think yeah. I've ever once trained on a Saturday. Never once, you know, and that's the big day at every jujitsu school. I mean, that's when the day you want to go because that's how everybody shows up. It's a great time. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever once trained on a Saturday. I've always worked on Saturday. I've worked on every Saturday since I was 15 years old. You know, I work on Saturdays. And, um, you know, what happened for me was, you know, I went to some of the noon, I was going to the noon classes because I was, when I became a coach, you know, being a coach means you work, you work split shifts. So you work like six to noon and then you work from like, you know, four to nine or something like that, you know, you split shift. So, and there's a, uh, there's a whole, there was a whole crew of people who had some kind of interesting schedule that, and it's a lot of trainers, a lot of coaches. You'll see if you go at noon, um, you know, there's a noon class. I did that for a while and I, you know, and then at one point I asked, uh, I wanted to train with the, with the big cat, big guys, the cats, the, you know, the world champions and stuff. And so I asked Ricardo, I said, hey, man, you know, hey, man, I didn't say hey, man. I said, Professor Ricardo, um, would it be possible for me to come and train in the morning and, you know, just get some extra rolls in? And he, and he said, sure. And so I started coming in the mornings. And that's when everything was really revealed to me. You know, all the teachers at the school, they all train in the morning. They don't take any classes. Yeah. You know, they're teaching the classes, right? And, and you know, people start – the people who are on track to become a coach, a lot of them start coaching when they're blue belts. You know, they have uh, – you know, like yourself maybe who are already wrestlers. They have a tremendous talent for it. They have a vision for themselves. They have goals. So uh, it, they're already – they're fully immersed. You know, they're there six days a week already, right? So uh, I started showing up in the morning, and there's no structure. It's not a class. Um, I would say this. Um, nowadays, um, professor Ricardo, it's kind of changed a little bit. You know, he actually runs classes there and stuff, but it's not like the normal class, you know, um, it's, it's a, obviously it's a different level, uh, for sure. But when I was going, I don't think I ever remember an actual class being taught when I was there in the morning on broad street. And that's when I met, uh, Chris Matakis. I don't think I, I don't know if I ever would have really became Chris Matakas is, is, you know, he owns McHugh, or he owns Matakas Brazilian Jiu Jitsu yeah. um, in uh, Florence. It's funny and, McHugh because I, I like Coach Pete. Yeah, Pete McHugh. I was bomb when he left. I, yeah. And um, so with, with Chris, you know, I don't, I wouldn't have ever became, you know, he's one of my best friends. And that never would have happened if I didn't start going in the morning. And, and you know, he gave me a lot of one on one lessons, man. Like we get into a position and he'd say, listen, you know, he wants to get something out of this too. So this, is, so this is what happens when you roll with somebody who's a lot, lot better than you, head and shoulders better than you. What they'll do is they'll put you in a position, they'll destroy you. And then you start over, you get back in that position. And they say, okay, let me show you how to stop me. Put your hand here, put your knee here, get on your shoulder, do this, do this. Okay. Ready? Now let's go. And so now you just learn two or three framing details or defensive details, um, and they stick. And it's, and, and, be, and it's a teachable moment because you're in the moment there. You just got destroyed. You're like, what the heck just happened there? And you say, look, let me show you what just happened there. X, Y, Z, the way you're going to stop it is A, B, and C. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden you're in this position, and you just your whole game just went from here to here in a couple seconds. 
right? Now, when you're in class, it's a tremendous amount of techniques, right? You're going to get three or four techniques. Uh, and depending on your learning style, I, don't, I always struggled with this. I had a hard time putting those techniques into context. So even though Professor Brian is spectacular at that, um, the way a lot of us experience it is this. Professor, Ricard, Professor Ricardo, Professor Brian, they go over a situation, and then I say, okay, here's, here, are the, here are three techniques we're going to use that are at some, at, at some level connected. You know, three different sweeps, three, three different butterfly techniques, or three different half guard techniques, or three different sweeps, whatever it is, right? So, but one, two, three, you know, by the time my blood sugar drops, I, my IQ got, turns to zero. You know, I see the technique three times. I get out there. I'm like, what? What technique did he just show me? You know, it's like I would forget the technique. And a lot of us have that same experience with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, it's incredibly complex. It can be at least. There's no such thing as learning at all. No person in the world knows it all, which is very, very rare because it's always evolving. You know, um, there are things like uh, barambola. I have never done a barambola in my life, and I never will. It's an inverted technique. It was very popular for a while in competition. I know nothing about it, you know, and I, know, and I never even bothered to learn it because I know I can never apply it in any way. And frankly, I don't even know if I would teach it to anybody because it's so convoluted, frankly. It's not really a self-defense technique. It's a competition technique. Mm, yeah. And, but what I learned was is the times I spent with, the, with my teachers, Frank became teachers, um, who are better than me, if you just ask them, you say, how can I stop you in this business? What am I supposed to do? It's amazing how generous they are. And then what you do is you go back right into that situation. So maybe you just work half guard all week, and all you do is you work a couple techniques. And That, that right there, you know, what you just said, is exactly what I wanted to do. And I felt that that wasn't really available, at least in the class I was going to, which was pretty crowded. And it, was the, it, was the, it wasn't night, but it was that uh, 5.30 or something like that. Uh, but but I had to do it because there was no other time for me to go. Yeah. Uh, because I I go to work. You know I'm out the door at six thirty in the morning. Um, I I, I work till about five thirty. Uh, I had to rush over and 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 then I would be there for that class. And and if I if I stayed to roll, then I would get home when my kids were going to bed. Um, and there's you know I was kind of like ah. And all I wanted was to be like, hey wait wait wait, I don't want to move on to the next technique. I want to do that a hundred times. Yeah. Because when I'm doing my guitar right now, like say, I, I, I learn a song and I'll just play it uh, until I, I'm done playing it, until I'm like, okay, yeah, got it. I got this. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sitting there trying to, you know, anyway, that was my whole thing. And I was like, I want somebody to just be like, to say, okay, Bart, you and I are just going to do this. And, and there wasn't that opportunity. And that is my same, it's me saying I'm special needs too, bro. So, <laughs> uh, and I, I do, and so I, I would love to go back to it. And actually I, I, uh, I'm getting to a point now. It's funny that you mentioned reinventing because I, uh, I was just talking to my guys last night. I'm, I think I'm going to be taking a sabbatical here. Um, as we come out of this thing, I, I've been thinking about it for a while. There's been some things going on in my life, uh, definitely midlife crisis for me. Um, you know, I'm not running away with uh, some Harley chick, but I do still have that. Okay, it's time for me to look at, some, at doing something different. Um, but you know, I, I retired from the Marine Corps, and my dad passed away uh, all within the same two months. Um, and so I definitely have found myself, uh, at least for the last couple of years now, since that retirement, sort of looking around like, okay, who am I? Yeah. Um, and it's uh, 
it's been it's been interesting. So I think I'm going to take a uh, an extended time away from from my job. Um, whether it's going to be there for me when I get back or not, I don't know. But I, but one of the things I was like, you know, I I would not mind getting back into jujitsu and, and learning it. But I don't want to. I I didn't like the structure of the classes there. Uh, I wanted something more personally uh, uh, cultivated for how yeah, I yeah. learn. Well, we'll get let's get it together. We'll get it together. One thing, I, only thing I really need to do, yeah, because I've been thinking about you know because you talked. I don't know what it was. Was it a year ago, maybe? Yeah. Eight months ago, something like that about it. Yep, yeah. Oh, was it that long ago? And, uh, you know, I've got panel mats. I've got an 8 by 12 area. What I really need to do is get a, I need to get a fourth panel mat so I can have a 12 by 12 area. 12 by 12 area is all you would ever need to, to roll with. And, you know, I'm in Cream Ridge. I'm close to you. How long would it take you to get there? Yeah, Cream Ridge. Yeah, Take yeah. So minutes. five minutes or ten minutes, something like that. So um, you know, we could we could definitely get something going. I really um, I don't have anybody coming over to train in my garage anymore. I haven't had um, for a while. I used to have a little crew that came over three times a week. You know, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. I had a whole bunch of guys from the school used to come over. You know, the like like the those people I was talking about before. You know, Max and yeah. Chris and all those guys who you know they work at night so that they can train during the day with yeah. the team and the whole crew. And how's Max doing? Uh, What's that? How's Max doing? You know, um, I think he's doing better. Okay. I think he's doing better. I think he's doing better. He had a rough spot for a while, I think. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't know about this. You know, he, um, yeah, he had a rough spot for a while. I don't know how much, because so much of it's personal, I don't know yeah. how much I want okay. to reveal. Oh, okay, yeah, don't. Um, because he's a close personal friend. Yep. Um, no, I, I uh, but he went through a, he was going through a hard time for a while and he's, he's bounced around here and there, but, um, I think he's in, I'm, I'm trying to think, is he in, he was in Georgia for a while with his father. He was out in Arizona for a while, but uh, he's, 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 uh, trying to find his way. Has he been fighting at all? No, I think for him, I think fighting's not a good idea for the foreseeable future. Okay. I think, uh, you know, just without revealing too much, probably getting punched in the head and kicked in the head probably isn't the best thing yeah, uh, for him. And I hope he doesn't go back to it. I don't think he will. Um, but uh, yeah, he's a uh, great guy. He's nice guy. Back. He's yeah. still the most loving person you're ever yeah. going to meet. Yep. Yep. Um, that's for sure. Um, but uh, he's, he's, he's struggling a little bit. So, but yeah, I mean, so for me, it's funny. It's uh, one of the things. Yeah, I, hope he's, uh, I hope that comes around for him then. Uh, yeah, me too. You tell, uh, he won't remember me really. I was just one of many, but uh, yeah, I always thought he was just a, a super, super nice guy. And, Really interesting young man that uh, I think he was a Golden Glover as a kid. Oh yeah, he was a champion, Golden Glover, two-time world champion in Brazilian yeah. Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, man, I tell you, yeah, Max, that's a, that's a you're, you're a young guy that's already uh, you know conquered yeah. the world, or at least the physical world. Yep. Yes, he has. And I tell you, man, we uh, and our daughter loves him. My daughter, yeah, still yeah. loves him to this day. And her favorite T-shirts are her Max T-shirts, and I always ask about him all the time, and. Uh, and this is, it's been years since, you know, three, four years since she was a coach and um, was really coming over here every day. I mean, he, he, you know, he was my first guy trained in my garage, really. And uh, my daughter was 18 months old and I used to bring her down with me and we used to train and she would just sing the whole time in her thing and eat camel crackers. And I mean, so, you know, he, he was like a big brother or an uncle to her for several years. So, Max. you know. Dragging sleds in the drive. She had her own little sled right, that I had made for her. And they dragged sleds in the driveway together. And so anyway, that was kind of a golden era for me, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, when I look back, something I'd like to try and recapture some of the feeling. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at my, dude, I got four cages in my garage. I got 5,000 pounds of weight. I got everything, dumbbells, bars, every kind, plus these mats. I mean, it's like I could, I could literally start a school in my garage, 1,300 square feet. Yeah. No pillars. There's a big I-beam through the middle of it. Dude, I'm. Three, three big doors that open up. I'm jealous. You know, so we got this 100-yard driveway, drag sleds on. and But I actually, believe it or not, I thought it might be cool at some point to build like a little, like a 12 by 12 deck, you know, out in the garden, covered with mats. And how cool would it be to do jujitsu out in the middle of the fern? Yeah, it'd be, you know? awesome. it'd be like Karate Kid, right? Or something okay. like that, you know? So I did think that I might start doing something like that in the future. I'm not exactly sure how and where, but um, now with all this stuff going on, this might be the perfect opportunity to kind of put, you know, throw it out there. And, you know, gyms are closed yeah. and I don't know what the future is going to hold for a lot of these, a lot of establishments. So there might be a lot of people that are looking for something different. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of people looking to reinvent themselves, try some new things. And, uh, you know, maybe we could start a little fight club. Dude, I would, I would, I would love that. Um, you know? Yeah. You know, that, that, that for me would be, again, it's, it's just one of those things where I, I need, I need a little bit more personal. I guess I'm, I, I guess I need attention. <laughs> That's a bad way to say it, but I, I, I definitely like a little bit more personal sort of one-on-one yeah. uh, than, than sort of that. Plus it would have been good to have the same. I, I really wish I had a guy that was like my main training partner yes. uh, you know, in wrestling. I, you know, when I was, when I was a wrestler, you know, I worked out with the same two guys basically most of my time right we knew each other we 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 worked on all these things together and then of course you know now and again you're 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 working out with someone different and that's good because you're trying these things out but you you get to a comfortable training partner instead of you know ah geez this guy smells like tuna man i don't want your mouth up against me there man so (laughs) no there's a completely different level of refinement yeah you had a sweet so like for me joe manfield you know joe he teaches uh, he teaches a striking on friday nights okay I probably would know his face. You know his face. He's a big guy. He's my, you know, he's a big guy, thick guy, very strong. So, you know, my strength moves don't work on him, you know, and uh, he's, and he's, he's my age. And so, you know, we both have the same issues with stuff like, uh, you know, endurance, you know, you're not with, there's no way around it, man. You know, when you're 46, you're only a guy at 21. Yeah. You know, I remember I was rolling with this total stud, uh, Brendan Peck, my size, my strength, stronger than me. And, uh, but he's 20 years old, you know, a total stud. Right. And, uh, I can hang with him for 10, 15 minutes, but after about 15 minutes, you know what? He's still going at the same level. And all of a sudden I'm, I am struggling. So, you know, I, it was, it was, it's a crazy experience when it's like, okay, I can survive. I know my defense is good enough to survive for 15 minutes with this guy, but with Joe, it was, it's different because with Joe, you know, you know, when you're older, one, you can't roll as much. You're not so you're not going to have as wide a range of techniques, you know, because it just takes it just takes hours on the mat to develop that to refine yeah, techniques right. and actually work against somebody, right? So you so you each have a, a fairly specific repertoire. He was always trying to work on bottom half guard with me. He always would pull bottom half guard, which is fine for me because that's something that you're going to get stuck in a lot. And you know you got to be able, if you can pass the half guard, you know you can pretty much pass any guard. You know they're all kind of dissimilar. You know you're still dealing with the legs, so you know. I was working on, I, I had gotten to a point where I didn't want to work on, I had cross-faced people for 10 years. And, you know, when you're two six and you're cross-facing people, nobody wants to roll with you. You know, it's like, you know, 
all of a sudden people like the, like the little the little technical guys they don't want to roll with you because they know you get on top you're going to cross face them so i decided you know on my whole kindness thing i thought you know if i could submit people without cross facing them let's try that you know so i started going for the far side arm so here, here I had an opportunity to basically, he wanted to work half guard, bottom half guard against me. And what I wanted to work was side control where I wasn't cross-facing people. Yeah. You know? And so what happens is when you, when you have two people who are basically working, well, working on similar things, you get a developer refinement because, you know, it's like, okay, twice a week for a half an hour, I'm going to work on developing my far side arm game and getting Camorras from that position and Americanas and things like, and, and, and mounts from that position. Right. And, and I'm just working on a, a, a few basic techniques now. What's, and what's awesome about it is, is in the next room, you have Bri- professor Brian. So this is what happens when I'm not looking, you know, Joe's over there talking to professor Brian about he, how he can counter my offensive techniques. Right. And of course, when Joe's not looking, I'm asking Professor Brian how I can counter the counters to my techniques. So here we have this level of, ref, of refining the same basic t- techniques over and over and over again. And then we have a master nearby who can say, turn the wrist like this, you know, put your shoulder like this, you know, change your angle by 15 degrees. And so you, like, as you said, you're getting better together. So then when you go up against somebody who, isn't nearly as refined in that position. It's just, you just go through them like, like, like hot butter. And so I, I, that's when I started getting a lot better was when I started rolling with Chris McTakis on a more, on a a better level, you know, like if, like if he's inside control, like I knew I got better when I could stop him from mounting me when he was inside control. Like, and he always passed my guard 100% of the time he passed my guard. So I was always inside control with him always. So he would say, Noah, do this. This is what you have to think about. One, two, and three. So you just focus on three things for 20 minutes, three times a week. Yep. And all of a sudden, you're doing this against the best in the world, and you're not getting mounted in 10 seconds. You're getting mounted in 30 seconds, or you're getting mounted in three minutes. Or now you're not getting mounted at all by that guy. Yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, my God. Now, if I've got, mind you, I'm 50 pounds, 60 pounds heavier, you know, but – if I can hold off Chris Matakis, one of the best in the world, from mounting me for five minutes from side control, that's a huge success, you know? And then when you get a lesser person on top of you, it's, it's not even the thing, right? And so the thing about you, getting back to the techniques in jiu-jitsu, no one can learn it all. There's thousands of techniques, but you don't need to know thousands of techniques. You need to know two or three in each position. If you look at my hero uh, in jiu-jitsu, is a guy named um, Hodger Gracie, probably the best of all time. He's a big guy. Uh, maybe, maybe Gordon Ryan is now the best of all time. But for his time, until Gordon Ryan came around, he was the best of all time. He just beat Bouchesha a year ago at the peak of his powers. So uh, I think that it's a strong claim. Anyway, he has got the simplest game you will ever see. You will never ha- – you could take probably two or three lessons and go over his entire repertoire. Yeah. He's the best of all time, though. Well, Nobody can stop him in those techniques. Yeah, that goes back to, you know, what, what was the old – and it's cliche to quote Bruce Lee when we're talking martial arts, but, uh, but he, he did have some wise quotes. And one was, you know, I, I, don't, I don't fear the man who knows a thousand kicks. I, I fear the man who knows one kick, and he's done it a thousand yeah. times. 
Uh, and that is true. And it, and it, and it holds true in, in not just martial arts, but in, in life in general, uh, master a skill and, uh, and, and it will be, uh, effective. So you're right. A, a small repertoire of, of highly effective skills can, can win the day. And I, I like that idea. I really do. Uh, of course you always want to get better. You, you want to try new things if you can. Um, especially if they fit with your, uh, particular, um, uh, you know, style, um, so again, it's just like wrestling, cer- certain things I liked to do, uh, based on my style, um, and certain things I wasn't going to, to be as good at. I always, my top game was always really weak in wrestling and, uh, and, and really the top game is, is where it's at. <laughs> oh, yeah. but, um, but stay yeah. get on top, stay on top. Right. Oh yeah. But I was, you know, I, I concentrated mostly on takedowns, which, okay. which are more fun and, and pretty, yeah, yeah. but you know, the, all of that to be said that that is exactly what I would, what I would like to do. And, and so I don't well, know. You, listen, you can't be the only one. So, you know, I mean, I, I'm after talking to you and, you know, kind of hashing out some things, you know, uh, I think that uh, we could probably give each other a lot of great value uh, rolling, you know, and I probably could learn a lot about wrestling from you and uh, maybe I could teach you a couple things in jujitsu too. And, um, oh, you absolutely <laughs> could teach me a few things and I am not a black belt wrestler. So there's, there, there definitely would be a, uh, yeah, you would be the one doing most of the, I would be getting most of the benefit there, but that's okay. But you, you like to teach. So I love to teach, man. You mentioned it. You said it's a fight club. I, I, that's a great idea. I like that where there's, you know, a few people that come over to your place, um, and, and, you know, we get to know each other and we're working. I think that would be really awesome. I, I don't know. I mean, we're not going to make that happen tonight, but maybe I, we'll talk offline afterwards. You know, yeah, I yeah. want to ask you something, by the way, you know, by the way, do you have a, do you have a flow grappling subscription? I do. Yeah. I do flow wrestling, of course. So I have my flow script. But when you were talking about all those guys, they've been doing a lot of great crossover stuff. I think Gordon Ryan just did something with, uh, was, did he, did he wrestle? Did they do some grappling with, um, with Pat Downey? The, the wrestlers and grapplers are doing some cross stuff. It's really yes. Wild. He did an interesting match. I forget the guy's name, uh, but he's a wizard. Um, and he took him down. Yeah, he took him down. You know, and he and he had to give. What was interesting is is Gordon. Like so, uh, I forget the wrestler. His name. Oh God, I can't it. it was it was really interesting because you know, no, he wouldn't. Was, take, was that was that Bo Nickel? I think it was. Yes, yes, yes. I watched it. Bo Nickel's a Penn Stater, and of course, yeah. of course, I love the guy. So I was like, hey, yeah, crossover. I watched that. Yeah, he ended up taking he ended up taking him down, and that and then he and then he got away from his game plan. He should not have. He should have just freaking run for the last forty seconds, and he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what the thing is is you know I, I think everybody wanted to see a fight. You know I didn't want to yeah. see a match. I wanted to see a fight, and you know that this that but it was it was really fascinating to watch that. And you could see they both really knew the limitations yeah. Yeah. and possibilities of their arts because you know Gordon literally had to give him you know he, he basically had to give him a suplex that's right and he looked like i mean i literally if it was anybody but uh gordon ryan i mean Bo would have their neck would have cracked yeah i know I mean, that, that suplex that, he freaking put him oh upended him and that was, get, but, i think that was a mistake by the way well, it was because the rules of the, the rules right. of the match yeah. once you're like you can't pull guard yeah. Right. But once you're down, you can stay down. That's right. So he had to give it to him. But that was a that was a that was a it was a fun match to he see. Could have just run at that point. Yeah. Uh, because I don't think the rules. I, there's not a. Uh, I, I, there is some sort of a. I, I don't know what it's called. But it's not like it's not called stalling. But there is something 
right? But I don't think he would have – if he would have just kind of stayed away from him. You know what? He, come on. He's a man. Yeah, I know. I mean – Fight. Yeah. You know, we can't, everybody wants to see the fight. Don't run. Away. You're Bo Nickel. Yeah, Bo like, Nickel doesn't run. Yeah, Bo right. Nickel doesn't. I mean, that was me. I'm like, by dude. By the way, Bo, Bo, is, uh, Bo is absolutely, uh, he's been vocal about uh, after, uh, I think he's going to try for the Olympics, but uh, after that, he's going MMA. He's been voted. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, That'd be great. I, I'll, I'll, I'll buy the ticket to watch him fight, man. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, Ed Ruth is already there at Bellator. I keep following him. Uh, but, you know, it, it, that's a good, that's a big thing because wrestling, there's not pro wrestling, right? There is, but it's not. We all know that it's a it's theater. Uh, so yeah. for most wrestlers uh, throughout history, you're, you're going on to be whatever you're going to be. But there is no professional, right? Unless you're one of those that is fortunate to be an Olympic caliber, uh, you're not going to uh, you're, yeah. you're not going to make it a living, right? Uh, right, right? You know, unless you go into coaching. But but with MMA being so popular now, um, and and it, it is a and and grappling being so important to MMA. Yeah. That these guys are, are they they realize they're like hey yeah this this crosses over well and if i practice some striking stuff too and uh then then this is this is a viable way to uh, make a living with my physical skills so yeah uh, a lot of them are going to that i love it i, I and it, and that's why i mean you could tell me better i but i i always wonder you know why why is brazilian jiu-jitsu so popular it really has exploded it's, it's undergone this renaissance i I keep I, I keep thinking back to probably the early UFC days when Royce Gracie was tapping guys, uh, you know, after getting pummeled, yeah. you know, and he's, <laughs> he he take this pummeling, and then as soon as they were on the ground, boom, it's over, and and uh, and I think that you know because the the UFC, um, you know, did did a good job of bringing these disparate fighting styles together to see you know which is the best, and it turned out that jujitsu and Muay Thai are probably the two that. Um, Definitely. I mean, they, when you when you look uh, when I look at Pride uh, and UFC. Now I don't. I'm not as astute as I used to be, but I <laughs> back in the day I used to be able to tell you who brought what techniques into UFC, like Vanley Silva and the knees. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was the first one to just show. Okay, you can win with just knees. You know, and um, so, but there's no question when you, when you, when I was watching prior, I remember thinking, well, Muay Thai trumps boxing, Western boxing and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu trumps wrestling. But I would say in the modern era, you're right about Muay Thai, you're right about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but wrestling is considered a third and equal co-branch of the, the triad. Yeah, um, because your jujitsu is meaningless if you can't take somebody down when you want to. That's right. And uh, the wrestling, what it does is it allows you to hide from superior strikers, right? And you even, and if you're, as we all know, um, it takes maybe five percent as much skill to be a good defender as being a good attacker. So you know, if you can take somebody, if you're a master of taking people down and holding them down, uh, you don't need a whole lot of defense to save yourself in MMA for being on the top. I mean, when's the last time you saw somebody get caught from, you know, from the, from the guard in a submission in an MMA? It's been like 10 years or something like that. It never happens. You'll even see Kimuras. You don't see – maybe you might see – at lower levels, you'll see a guillotine, but you're not going to see an armbar. You might see a triangle occasionally, but it's, it's not a good place to be. Uh, even, if you're the, even if you're Damian Maya, Damian Maya doesn't even want to be on the bottom. In MMA, right? I mean, that's where you're going to get punched and everything else. So uh, I think Mark Coleman really proved uh, that all you really need is a wrestling background. I can't do headbutts anymore. But, you know, Mark Coleman came out, and he was the guy who showed, look, you can, if you're an Olympic-caliber athlete, you can take people down and ground – and he invented ground and pounding, really. Um, so – and 
I don't care how good your Muay Thai is, if you don't have good wrestling, you're going to get taken down by a great wrestler. Yeah. So, yeah, I think wrestling is the foundation, really, I think, of uh, MMA. Is it a foundation of fighting? That I can't tell you. I mean, I think that um, I don't want to go to the ground on a street fight. So that's the problem with wrestling as a martial art, is that if your skill set is primarily taking people to the ground, well, you know what? I don't know about you, but if I see you on top of my buddy, I'm kicking your head clean off. You know, I mean, 10 out of 10 times. So that's the one disadvantage with that. If that's, if that's your only skill set as a fighter, you know, is, you know, so, you know, I, there, there's always, uh, that's the great thing. It's chess, you know, yeah. I mean, you, you move one way, I move another way. There's, there's always that evolution. But I, I think that uh, t- at least takedown defense has got to be your starting point if you're a fighter, right? Yeah. I mean, because that's where you don't want to be. So, you know. I'd rather be in a fist fight with somebody, uh, frankly, in a street fight than a, than a grappling match on the ground because you just don't know where it's going to go. I can run away. I can disengage and run away, you know, if I'm on it's my feet. It's coming from a jiu-jitsu guy there. I would, yeah, yeah. I would well, think that you know, once you're on the ground, you've got the guy. But you- well, I, that's my hope. That's what, So the reason why I train Brazilian jiu-jitsu is because the ground is the most, most – Most street fights end up on the ground anyway. Well, that's number one. And number two is the most dangerous place you could ever be is on the ground with somebody rolling around with somebody on top of you. Because they have a friend coming around the corner, don't they? That's how I look at it. So I feel like it's the most dangerous position. So that's why I want to be deadly in that position. If you go down there, you better really know what you're doing. Because I I basically want to break you in about three seconds so I can roll you off of me and stand up. That's why I train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because you've got to be that good at it. It it doesn't do you any – I shouldn't say it doesn't do any good. But in a street fight, being a novice in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I don't know how much good that does you. I think you really have to be an expert in Brazilian jiu-jitsu because you've got to be able to get down there. I mean, frankly, would I put my thumb in somebody's eye? Probably first thing I would do, yes. Would I break their fingers right away? Yes. Would I bite their nose and bite their ears? Yes. Um, you know, I'm going to – I'm. you know, that that's what I'll do when I get down there. You know, I'm not going to throw a triangle on somebody in a street fight uh, because it might take – 10 seconds before they pass out, you know, if I don't hit it perfectly, you know? So uh, my goal really is if I get, if I get taken down, I want to sweep somebody and, you know, and then, you know, finish them and then stand up and get ready for the next guy. So uh, it's not going to be arm bars and triangles and Kimuras and that kind of stuff. It's going to be a thumb in the eye, a sweep, a shot to the neck, stand up and wait for the next guy. You know, but the, but without the jujitsu, you know, will the sweeps be there? Will the will the will the muscle memory to keep somebody inside my guard be there? You know, I have to prepare for the per- for the worst case scenario. So yeah, and somebody on top of me on the street is the worst case scenario. So that's where I start. I always start from my back. You ask anybody who rolls with me, I always start from my back, and because that's to me the number one, it's the worst place to be in a fight. I don't care how good you are, you do not want to be. Uh, you know, not want somebody on top of you. They have gravity on their side and all these other things, right? So um, that's, the, that's the very first thing I want to do is I want to start from my bottom. And then from a training perspective, what it allows me to do is it allows me to work through all my progressions. So, you know, I'm on my bot, I'm on my back, and, you know, I maybe I get the half guard, now I get the full guard, now I sweep the person, you know? So now I'm in mouth. So uh, I always used it as philosophically from a very uh, – I always train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with the fight in mind. You'll never see me do competition uh, techniques. I don't do those. I only do self-defense techniques. Now, I was one, I was going to ask you about that because I, I did kind of feel that was another thing. I was like, hey, I, I don't 
I'm not interested in competition. So yeah. I'm really only interested in, in defense and that's, uh, you know, and, and there was, you know, so there were times again that I was, I remember being like, ah, I don't, I don't really want to work on this. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, again, I, I, I get it. You know, there's a, uh, there, there's a curriculum there. Um, and, and I guess that was, you know, yeah, the curriculum wasn't. Well, the, the curriculum, I'll tell you from someone who had to teach the curriculum. Yeah. It's vast. Yeah. It's vast. Now when I taught it, you know, because I taught the kids program, I taught it like a basic class. Yep. You know, but, and I threw a couple intermediate skills in there. Like, cause they, you know, you have to, half guard is not a basic, is not a basic uh, guard. But, you know, if you're going to teach people to stand up to pass the guard, you have to teach the other person half guard, right? Because that's the defense, yep. you know? So you're not going to give the person a good look at passing the guard if you don't teach them the half guard. So I, I would say half guard actually is a basic guard for me these days. Um, but, you know, I... Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 vast, and I, what I would say is a lot of the again, in your mind, you just have to remember, this is the self defense stuff, this is competition stuff, yeah. this is more convoluted, this is very straightforward and direct. You know, I'm all about simple and direct because I'm 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 not again, those competition techniques. You're talking about people who train every day, two three hours a day. They've mastered those basic techniques. And the and and what they're learning is the counters to the counters to the counters to the counters of those techniques. And by the time you get that deep into the art, that's when you're starting to learn these convoluted techniques. They're techniques that you would only ever need against a world champion, you know, or against a really awesome practitioner. You know, one of the things I love about uh, and I think is so great about wrestling uh, and Western style boxing is there's actually comparatively few techniques. Um, there's really not a lot to wrestling. If you really look at it, um, compared to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's not even close to level of techniques. But what do you see there? A refinement of technique. Yeah. You know, you give me a middle school, you give me an eighth grader who's wrestled for two or three years, and they probably know enough, they probably know enough to defend themselves with the wrestling techniques if they've done it for a few years. And I'm, I'm not, they're not even club, just 10 weeks, you know, three seasons. They're going to know takedown defense. They're going, to know, they're going to know a double leg. They're going to know a single leg. They're going to know a high crotch. You know, they're going to know leverage. Yep. They're going to know how to push. They're going to know how to drive, you know, which is one of the big things wrestling teaches you is how to drive and, and connect and sequences of techniques. It's incredible refinement of a relatively few techniques. And that's why it's so effective, in my opinion. Same with Western boxing. Very, few, I mean, if you look at what it's very few techniques are even allowed, you know, and but you look at the refinement, you know. I mean, if you if literally if you just have a good jab, you're probably a good street fighter, you know. What I mean, and one single t- it's that potent of a technique, yep. um, just like uh, the deep or uh, of Muay Thai is basically a foot jab, you know. If you've got a really good deep, I mean, I'm 6'2, if I've got a good deep, I mean, I can keep you four feet away from me. And, you know, it's going to be, and so, um, again, going back to, you know, what we were talking about before, you know, as far as our own practice, when it comes to the effectiveness of the martial art, you need a very few techniques done very, very well, but you know, it's just like anything else. If like for me, I've done it for 12 years, yeah, after 12 years, maybe you want to learn something, something else. Yeah, that's right. Maybe you just want, maybe you just want to learn something sexy, Yeah, you know, and, uh, and that's part of it too. But, um, you're right. It's, it's really, I actually, believe it or not, I have thought a lot about how I'm going to teach adults, uh, moving forward. And I actually thought 
uh, uh, based on what you've said, and you know, it seems like we're in real agreement on, it, and our experience is very, very similar, that um, there might be a different way to teach the basic class. You know, until you get your blue belt. Yep. I think once you get your blue belt and you know the basics, there's the the various counters and things like that, and the advanced will be considered advanced guards. They're going to make sense for you because you're going against people who know what you know. Um, and in order to, to beat them, you have to constantly evolve. Um, but I have thought about, you know, what if I taught the adults more like I taught the kids? Like, I wonder if that would work. Like, I wonder if it's, if it would be too simple for some people, but, um, but that would only be a few percent. I think, I think most people are probably a lot more like me and you, you know, I, I think you're right. And you could probably, yeah. So you could make up your own curriculum based on, a. a, a a shorter list of what you consider core effective techniques and, and do that as the basic class, right? right. And get those people to a certain level. And, and then you can start to add in some of that other stuff that, um, it, you know, as they, that they can refine, as you said, you know, but then they have a, that foundation, you know? So again, the foundation, like, like with any, like in wrestling, Hey, a, a good single leg, attack a good double leg attack um uh, a sprawl defense uh you know one good uh at least one good breakdown probably two from top and, and then a good stand-up technique and maybe some sort of a reversal technique i mean you could basically do six ten techniques of, for a wrestler and and the same thing you said about your hero i can't remember his name but uh you know that that wrestler could win the olympics if he was that, yeah, that good. Just those techniques. It's amazing. Yeah. So like I've, I've thought about, for example, like if you look at the warm up, the warm up, the way I taught the kids program, they were rudiments of the basic movements right. of Brazilian. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I love that aspect of it, but I thought, you know, like with the kids, I always did all those animal crawls to develop their proprioception, their, their physicality. So they could do some of these techniques, you know, cause they're, you gotta learn how to use your body before you can. Do and so, they were so young and yeah. they're uncoordinated and it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I liked it. No. But what's interesting is I, when I watched the basic class, the adults, you know, adults are pretty uncoordinated too. You know, you've been sitting on the couch for 10 years, you know, you lost the coordination you had, right? Exactly so right. I did the, the big question. And then I thought, okay, so I, so I thought, okay, we could maybe the warm up instead of running around in a circle doing high knees and butt kickers, Maybe the warm up, you go right into the technique, uh, the rudiment techniques, and then from there you go in and say, okay, we're gonna do these animal crawls that, you know, maybe resemble in some way just general movement. Maybe do those for a few minutes, because there's there's a variety of things it does for your neuroplasticity and stuff like that, which allow you to learn much faster. Because you know, jujitsu is insane as far as the the it's like playing the drums. Yeah, you know, yeah. everything is doing something different, right? Yeah. So then you, so now you're developing, a lot of people can't do this thing called cross pattern crawling and that's no, based on neuroplasticity. So if you, if you have people who can't uh, cross pattern crawl, I think their chances of learning Brazilian Jiu Jitsu are, are minimal, frankly, because it, it, it's, it's, it's a rudiment of movement, right? So I thought, you know, you could do that. That would encourage uh, neuroplasticity. And then what I thought was uh, like a, almost like a third section of warm up, like 10 minutes where just like a warm up where everybody stands up and passes the guard twice. Everybody does non bar on both arms. Everybody does triangle on both arms. Everybody does a Kamor on both arms, Every, you know, from the guard, yeah. you know, everybody does a scissor sweep. Everybody does, you know, and, and just take 10 minutes to review. Like you said, maybe it's not six movements. I don't know. Maybe it's 20, but take 10 minutes 
and just review, you know, those very basic things. Now, you know you're going to get the details wrong because you're a beginner, but you just work through those, and then you teach. Then you, then you teach, you break down maybe three techniques for the day. You, maybe it's a takedown. Usually it's a self-defense technique, a takedown, which I always put together. I always did self-defense and with the kids, a self-defense technique, you know, blocking technique or something, and then a takedown right away. I feel like they go together. And then anyway, because that's your entry into the takedown is your defense, right? So you might as well just do both of them together. Yep. Um, some things that I think when I, when I looked at the basic class, I noticed they did that with the takedowns. Maybe not in the basic class, but the intermediate class. In the immediate class, what they did a lot of time to warm up was all these fit-ins for takedowns. And I looked at that and I said, you know what? That's awesome because every class you're practicing all your big fit-ins and nobody's getting hit to the ground. You're not taking anybody down. But this way you just – you know, you just work through your basic judo t- takedowns, your basic wrestling t- takedowns, spend five, ten minutes of that. But I wonder why couldn't we do the same thing with some ground techniques? You know, I don't, I don't know. It, it, I think that's a great idea because so those, what, those, those techniques are you, – you want those to become second nature. Second nature, right. So uh, when you get – plasticity was a great word, by the way, because uh, it's uh, – that is that when you when you get that when you when your your brain starts to switch to understand uh, those physical movements that that is when you it, it's like when you first start learning a different language and you start to dream in that language it, it, that is what you want to happen and so I yeah I I would I think that's a great idea Noel we'll just have to see how it works and is that what everybody wants you know what you the, one of the issues is I would say this as being a if you're if you're a school owner and teacher yeah. Um, there's a big difference between the right way to teach people, the, uh, the, the pedagogy of teaching people and what they actually want. You know, people want the, the new shiny object all the time, right? So people want to come in every day and they want to get new techniques and, you know, they, oh, we'll go over armbar again. Oh, we'll go over the triangle again. And so there's a, from a business standpoint, you know. Yeah, that's funny. Like I, part of it. and I was saying, you know, you know, just in our talk, I was saying I would want kind of the opposite. I want to get really good at a few techniques to where I know that I can roll with anyone and, and I'm so good at this that at least I've got a chance and, and then add to that, add to those techniques. One thing that I remember has stuck with me with Chris Matakas. He told me that um, our job is hiding repetition. That's what he told me. Ah. And I didn't really understand that until I taught for a few years and I started realizing, wait a minute, I, you know, Maybe I'm teaching several different techniques from the half guard, but I'm actually teaching the same thing. Yeah. Because, yeah. Actually, because a Kimura is a Kimura, whether you're, on the, whether you're on your feet, whether you're in side control, whether you have somebody in your clothes guard. The, the basic details of the Kimura are the same. And there, there is a sort of a learning curve. Where, and there is sort of this, this, there are these magical aha moments that you get where, you know, you've learned this body of techniques at a very superficial level you know and but you're also refining your own personal game where you know you're doing the same basic techniques all the time but somewhere in the data bank you know it's it's in there shuffling around then all of a sudden you know you're rolling and you realize there's a detail from another technique that works exactly the same in this technique because it's similar and you're like, ah, I get it. You know, like when I'm sweet, like when you sweep people, you, you're always elevating people. When you sweep people, you always got to get them on top. You're pulling them on top of you. Yeah. You have to realize, wait a minute, every sweep I do, I've got to pull somebody on top of me. 
I've got to elevate them. I got to do a ladder of some sort, right? And an escalator of some sort, right? So it's like, wait a minute. And then all of a sudden, like, it's like when you learn to pass the butterfly guard, you can pass any guard, you know, because it's with the same basic techniques. You go to one side, you, you, you hip down, you isolate the one leg, then you go all the way to the other side, do the same thing. And you're like, wait a minute, if I can do this against a butterfly guard, I can do it. All I got to do is get in a similar position with the half guard, you know, or, you know, and so there's, there's, it, it takes a while. And I'm not saying I'm even really uh, where I want to be with that. But all of a sudden you start looking at like, um, I was lucky that I was a gymnastics coach. I was taught by my wife for six years. And what that really taught me was that the most advanced movements are just collections of rudiments, right? So as you start to develop these rudiments and you start to do all these techniques, all of a sudden you're like, okay, rudiment one, rudiment 13, rudiment nine. Okay, what's this next technique? Oh, it's rudiment one, rudiment 11, rudiment nine. Oh, what's your next technique? And all of a sudden you start looking at it and you're like, wait a minute, there's only, a, there's only three ways to pass the guard. You're going to go over the legs, you're going to go under the legs, or you're going to go around the legs. That's it. There's three ways to pass the guard. Now, there's a thousand ways to do that. But when, in your mind, once you start thinking, wait a minute, you know, there's only three ways to do this. You know, when someone's on top and you start thinking, wait a minute, there's really only one way to sweep this person. I've, I've got to, if they're in half guard, you know, I've got to take the post out. Or if they're another guy, I have to elevate them. So it's like, wait a minute. Okay, I got to get underneath somebody to do that, right? I need to, just like a, a chair has four legs, I always have to take away at least one of those legs. Yeah. You know, and whatever leg I take away, guess what? That's the direction they're going. Yep. So there's these, um, the fundamentals of jiu-jitsu, they're exceptionally few. The techniques are vast. And I think that um, somehow as teachers, uh, and everybody is different, and some of that has to do just with our own personal responsibility as learners, uh, like Chris Matakis wrote notes after every single class and every single role. And he was like, you know, he writes books now. He's, he said, dude, you got to take notes. I've never, never really embraced that. Yeah. But I look at the way, but see, the way he knows, the way he learns. I, I was going to say, uh, you know. So he would roll. Well, you, you might not. I don't think that yeah. would work for me, but. It might not. So what he would do is he would roll, and then whatever he learned that day, he would write down. Yeah. So he could remember it. Yep. You know, you forget it five minutes out the door. So it's just like, you know, if you're going to school, you know, you're going to go to class. But if you think you're going to ace the test just by going to the class, you're a sucker. You know, you're going to go home. You're going to look at your notes. My wife, what she used to do is she used to retype all of her notes. She was a straight-A student. So what she would do is she would retype all of her notes. So she would go to the class, write the notes, retype the notes. It's three, three levels of learning. And then, by the then when she went to study it, it was easy for her to remember, right? So that was her process. So everybody has their own process. But I think for those of us who have struggled, what probably we failed to do is identify and then put into practice what our best learning mode is. And I would say for almost everybody, it's going to be, it's going to require some review yeah. outside of class. And so I have a bunch of DVDs that I like. I have people that I study that for whatever reason, uh, like, like uh, Professor Brian one time uh, uh, said, listen, you got to look at this guy for you. He's the most technical, and I want he, you're going to learn this. You're going to learn this 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 technique, and it became this technique that I that I use against to this day. You know, I, so having a good teacher say, Noah, I know you, go learn this technique. Look at this guy's game. And he, gave, and he handed me the DVDs. Say, take a look at this. You know, um, so that's a lot of it. Like with Hodger Gracie, I belong to his website. Henzo Gracie has a website. So with Hodger, I I, I feel like Henzo, since he's Ricardo's teacher, makes sense. Hodger was Ricardo's training partner when he was the best in the world. 
And um, so, you know, I, I look to them to, so I can go home and I can say, okay, let me, let me, I got stuck in half guard. What was I doing wrong? I go home, I try and figure out if I can find out before I left, I go home and try and figure it out. Yeah. So a lot of it is, and that's when I, you got to take some responsibility for that. I think if you want to really progress and then like you say for you, you want to do a um, hundred arm bars. Well, all you got to do is find somebody. That's right. You know, and you say, listen, I want to get better arm bars. Can you, will you spend 20 minutes after class with me and let's just do these. And you know, when I was, especially when I was coaching, that's why I, I would just, and you know, sometimes people, you know, they're tired. They don't want to roll with you. But eventually you find some people who are willing to roll with you on a regular basis and you just pull them out of class. And I, I'd always ask, is there anything you're working on? You know, is there a, is there a position you want to work, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we just go at it. So, um, you know, again, the, they, there's, this, there's this saying, drillers are killers. What you don't see is what you, um, what you never saw was that all the champions of our school, they train in the morning. And they drill in the morning and you'll see them. They'll do these weird drills where they'll just go through techniques over and over and over again. And they'll be a, because they teach themselves, there'll be eight of them or 10 of them sitting there watching one person teach a technique that they're awesome at. You know, that's their skill set. And it's like, okay, uh, you're doing uh, heel hooks today. Oh, so everybody's learning heel hooks, you know, and like for half an hour, the whole, everything just stops and somebody teaches a lesson and then people go about their own business. So everybody has, um, especially in the morning, I would say, uh, because they all of them had real specific goals. They had specific agendas. And if they were struggling with something, that's what they did. And, and, and you're right about the training partner thing. Those guys are best friends. And, and when I look yeah. at the most of the people who get their black belts, I watch most of them were not just class people. Uh, most of them were people who, uh, in fact, most of them, I didn't see at night a lot. There's not that many people who uh, want to do it for 10 or 12 years and they just do the classes. Most of them, they get to a point where they want to have more self-directed learning, yeah. kind of like where you were. But I, 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 I'm a self-directed learner. I was like that too early, Noah, but that's, you know, it's just my personality. Yeah. And, uh, well, I'm a self-directed learner too. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just love jujitsu enough that I just keep showing up. But like I said, you would be shocked by how few structured classes I took. I mean, I remember you telling me that. I would almost be embarrassed to admit how few I've taken. Yeah. No, it's fine though. And I, and I, I remember thinking, I wish that, I, I wish that I could have done that. I don't know that that was available uh, at the time frame that I was that I was there. But I, I've yeah. always thought, okay, I'd like to get back to this again. Uh, and I, well, frankly, to be honest, I probably only got a, another decade in me to be able to do that. Um, although you know, you see these old masters that are still rolling, but they started so back, you know, way back when too. Well, they did. Now, but I'll sell you to support your case, yeah. Master Carlos Gracie Jr. I remember when he came to the school. Uh, one time he said this, he said, look, these basic techniques are the techniques you're going to be able to do when you're old. Yeah. That's you're not going to get inverted when you're old. You don't want to get stacked. You don't want to get pressure, you know, stuff like that. So like there are certain techniques I will never do because I don't want to get stacked with my back. It's just impossibility. Yeah. It's a bad move for me. So, uh, I would rather just have my guard passed and start from side control. And I'm like, fine, I'm going to get like my goal. I love to start rolling from side control. Um, because my goal is to have a phenomenal uh, escape from side control, you know. So I always start from – that's my logic. I want to start from the worst positions I can be in. I want to start I'll – I'll tell if, especially if somebody, if I'm better than somebody or bigger, I'll say, dude, put me in side control, whatever your best thing you want to work on. So when, when I cross-face me, you know, start from my back with grips in, you know, stuff like that. So <laughs> – 
I do think you, um, there comes a point pretty quick. Pro- uh, look, you're, you're, you're a grown man. You're a, you know, you've been elite at something. You probably really understand uh, your process. You know, I say elite, you know, I'm talking about, you know, obviously being a pilot in the Marines. I and mean, that's an elite, elite accomplishment. Yeah. And there's no question about it. And um, so to me, what I, what, you probably know a lot about yourself that way. Now, you know, when you, wanna, when you wanna school, you have to teach, you know, teach, you teach to the middle. There's tried and true curriculum. But uh, nobody, I shouldn't say this. When I look at the, the majority of the people who are really proficient, they do the stuff on their own with their, yeah. with their individual partners. So you, you, I think your instinct was 100% correct. Uh, what I would suggest, though, is I don't know if you value, uh, if you, at the, at least the time, if you maybe if it was underappreciated, um, what, uh, let's say here, let me see here. So, I'm a, so I was an art major in college. I'm an artist. And, there's, and uh, you know, I, I study philosophy. I study history. So, and when I start to study a subject, I usually start with something that's a little broader. And then I get narrower. Yeah. You know, um, right. So I love uh, McCullough and his history books and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, he's man, pretty specific. I mean, he's going to say, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge, right? But like, you know, for me, I'm fascinated with that time around the Civil War. You know, so, you know, because the Industrial Revolution, you have the yeah. Civil War. You have, it's a lot of interesting things happening that time period. Yeah, that's so one of my period. favorite times in history too. I, I actually, Isn't it amazing, right? So I it's. A, I have a minor in history. I, I oh, you do? Okay. I, I wanted to major in it. Um, I remember my dad saying, hey, you can't really do much with that, but teach. And actually, I'm a great teacher, so maybe I should have. But I ended up with a degree in broadcast journalism instead. Uh, and then I flew attack helicopters. Per- perfect for a career for <laughs> attack helicopters, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would say that, um, so you may appreciate there is a value uh, in the beginning of education to get a broad survey. Yeah. And then figure out, oh, man, I, all I want to study is the Industrial Revolution in Virginia, you know, yeah. in this county. Yep. And, and then you start, you know, then you, like my aunt, she's a scholar. So let me tell you what she wrote her PhD on. I'm not going to get it 100% right. But she's a, she's a scholar of, uh, Shakespeare, she's a Shakespearean scholar, but she's also a feminist scholar. And so what she did was she went to England when she wrote her PhD, and she's wearing these white gloves, and she's looking at these court records from, I think it's something like 1870 to 1876. Uh, court cases in which women were the perpetrators of domestic violence. I mean, talk about specific, right? And uh, to get yeah. right, so to be a PhD, that's what you have to do. You have to write a book about something incredibly specific, right? So you don't start off. There's some people do uh, with a very specific thing, but even if you start off with a very, very specific interest, to really understand, you know that that moment, you're probably going to have to have a broader understanding of other things as well. Right. And so you, you can do it either way. Um, but with jujitsu, I think you would probably, it makes sense to me to start with sort of a broad survey. Yeah. You know, do you, under, do you understand the basic positions? Do you understand, like I said, passing the guard? C- can you explain to me? Like, that's why I would want to become as a teacher of jujitsu, adults especially. Uh, just like with the kids, I wanted them to tell me back that they knew there were three ways to pass the guard. Right. Like, I, I would simplify things so much. Like, you know, get the legs out of the way and get chest to chest, you know, past the guy. Get, I didn't get into all these, you know, specific, even names and positions and techniques. You know, I would just say, get, get on top of somebody, get chest to chest. That's your goal. As simple as like, that's, that's your goal in, in jujitsu is get on top and get chest to chest. So the idea would be is even if you didn't know the technique, if you can articulate your goal, you can zigzag your way there. But if you can't articulate your goal, 
how, it's just luck if you get there, right? So that was what I was trying to do as a, as a kids coach is trying to figure out how simple can I make Brazilian jiu-jitsu? You know, can I, can I, can I get a class of six-year-olds to do a hip throw? I can. Apparently, this is unheard of to have an entire class of kids loaded up on each other's hips, stable, and then can be able to take them down with kindness, you know? Um, so I was able, at least in some time, at, at points, to um, simplify things enough. And I think that sometimes as adults, we give each other too much credit for uh, as far as making things overly complex, yeah. overly early. Yeah. And as teachers, that's our fault because what we do as teachers, and we, all of us do it when we first start. We start teaching and we want to we want to give people um, the the PhD version of passing the guard. And guess what? You don't even you, you don't need that. What you need is can you say it in two or three sentences? Then maybe you actually understand it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Can you get absolutely. down to the essence of it? Because what the I think the reason why I was so successful for the kids was it was because I taught concept based rather than technique based. Yeah. And I don't know if that would work the same with adults, but I don't see why it wouldn't. Um, because if you have a, and I'm, look, I didn't invent this concept. There's other people who, uh, there's this Australian guy who teaches that way. And he, and he became a world champion. He, he, he talks about the same things you talked about. All these techniques, right over my head. I'm not, getting, I'm not refining it. I'm not really absorbing it so I can actually use it. And he, I should maybe research it. He wrote a book. And he, I think he has some DVDs out too. And he talks about um, conceptual learning. And some of us, which may be you, you might be a conceptual, I'm, I am more as well. I'm a conceptual learner. I'm never going to be able to learn, I shouldn't say never. It would take a Herculean effort for me to learn the kind of tech, the, what we want to be, super technical jiu-jitsu fighters, right? That's the biggest compliment, technical. But I, but I know what I can do in my life as a jiu-jitsu person is I can learn the concepts so when I get caught in a position where I'm not 100% sure what to do and I'm getting locked down, at least I know the direction I'm trying to go in and I know how to stop. I can be a destroyer. I can stop yeah. them from doing what I'm doing. And um, so, you know, it would be interesting to see how to meld those two. You know, I, I, I thought that maybe like on Sunday night, I might create a video that would go over the conceptual, you know, side of what we're because you know, you have a schedule for the week, you know what you're going to do. Okay, it's half guard bottom this week. Okay, so okay, Sunday night I get you know, or maybe I do a zoom thing or something. Sunday night I say, okay, this week we're going to be doing uh, bottom half guard, and let's talk about the basics here. There's a there's because there's a whole bunch of different half guards, but let's just talk about what we're trying to do here. You know, number one, we're trying to make sure we don't lose the leg we have. Number number one, number two, we know we got to have frames up. You know, so if we, if we have our frames up and we've got a leg locked down, all right, we can survive in this position. All right. So now that's the half guard. Now let's, and then, you know, I would probably would stop there. And then next week when you Z guard is a form of a half guard, but I probably would teach it like a, a separate con conceptual thing because that's what it has to be, you know, because you, cause it's a, you have a knee shield now, you know, and you're up on your elbow and you've got like this, this thing called the double frame. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a different set of concepts. So like I thought might be interesting is uh, Sunday night, go over the concepts of the position and then say, okay, guys, when you come in, I'm going to want you to know the starting position. So, I, so I should be able to snap my finger and say, okay, power up and get into half guard position. And I want to see everybody's frames in the right position. I want to see everybody's legs in the right position. 
And uh, and then I want you to be able to articulate to me basically what we're trying to do here, right? And, right? And then and I think if people had if people could articulate the concepts of the positions they were in, I think that the techniques would be absorbed much quicker. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Absolutely. Okay. You have to understand what it is you're trying to accomplish at the most conceptual level uh, so that the techniques actually make sense. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely. Uh, I think that's one of the most effective teaching methods. So, and I think we do that actually. And, you know, I was a flight school instructor as well. Uh, nice. so I got to go back and do a tour teaching all the new guys. And there is nothing like, for, first off, I just, like you, uh, teaching to me uh, seems I, I get a joy from teaching and there's nothing like seeing that light bulb come on yeah. um, when, when the kids like, you know, not getting it and we get up there and I'm like, okay, listen, so here's what we're, we're really trying to do. Right. And then I'll be like, this is what you, you know, here's a way to think about, it. here's a different way to think about this. And then they do it and they're like, sure, that's, oh, wow. I, I have not been able to get that right. I can't thank you. You know, and you're like, dude, yeah, just had to look at it in a different way. Um, so yeah, I love that. You know, uh, I do want to talk, one thing that you mentioned a minute ago when you're talking about teaching the kids and you were like, take them down with kindness. And we've been going for over two hours here, Noah, and time flies when we do this, you know, when we get in the ready room, I, I'm always amazed. But, I, you know, you're, one of the things that stands out that I'm always trying to, when I tell people about Noah, I'm like, he's this big guy, just the nicest guy, gentle. His, his mantra is strength and kindness. He always talks strength and kindness, you know. Uh, he'll, he'll kill you in three different, four different ways within five minutes, but, um, but he's all about strength and kindness. And I, I thought maybe, you, could, you know, just expound on that, man. Cause I really love that. Every time you post something like a video or, or, or some kind of, uh, you know, uh, an article that, where someone has done something really great and, and you talk about that strength and kindness, it obviously is something that's important to you. Yeah, you know, it is. Um, uh, I come from a interesting background. Uh, my mom, is all about, I, I would say strength and kindness. I conceived of that when I thought about my parents as archetypes. My father's strength, he's kind too. He's, he's tough. I mean, his, his um, dad died when he was six. He grew up in the streets of Chicago. Um, anything he's ever owned, he's bought himself. I mean, self-reliant, uh, resilient, tough, you know. And, and my mom, uh, teacher, social worker, you know, my, my parents adopted four children and which to me, I think is the ultimate strength and kindness. And I think, um, there's at least, uh, one way to measure somebody is, uh, what they do for others. I think that might be the most potent, uh, measurement of, of a man is, um, who we can take care of. And, um, you know, most of us struggle. I have two kids who struggle just to take care of two kids that, um, um, uh, you know, that I, that I have, uh, very few people go out of their way to take on, uh, the burden and the joys of course, but the burden of, of children who are, are, uh, not your own biologically. And, um, so I think growing up in a house where, uh, that was demonstrated, uh, it sunk in, you know, I don't, they never said strength and kindness, but, uh, the archetypes that they modeled for me. I, what I've tried to do is I want to be both of those people, you know, and um, I, the strength and kindness, well, I'll, I'll expound a little more on it. Uh, now, I know I guess people don't use it so much anymore, but when you talk about a hierarchy of needs, as those hierarchy of needs, I guess they're a lot more fluid, I guess, than that they're seeing now, and I get that. 
Um, but when I look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, when I, when I look at um, and I and I look at the, the those those base needs and how those his theory was that those and, and I think it's a strong one by the way. So I still think there's a lot of validity to it. Oh, yeah. Those base needs have to be met most likely for you to achieve those uh, the optimal state that you want to reach. Right? That that uh, you know pursuing your passion, you know doing what your calling is, you know identifying it and then being able to do it. Right. There's a lot of things that have to happen there. And when I think about humans in general, I think about uh, in the in the right, depending on the situation you put people in, you know, we can be you will know this better than anybody else. We revert back to that chimpanzee mind pretty quick. I imagine in war, um, you tear somebody the ability to tear somebody's face off uh, and, and kill someone and then and, and tuck your kid in at night. Uh, it's an amazing range human beings have. I think that uh, primarily is dictated by people's situations. Uh, there are people who are so profound in, in a certain character trait that no matter what position they're in, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll manifest that. But I think that's exceptionally rare. I think most people, if you put them in a deprived situation, if, like I asked myself, who, what atrocity would I not commit to save the lives of my children? You know, that's a, that's a heck of a thing to really look in your own eye, you know, look in your own soul and admit that to yourself, you know, at least to me, what, like I, after reading the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn, yeah. and you, you know, you read stuff like, and you, and, and, and his, and his revelation that he could just as easily have been, instead of the prisoner of the Gulag, he could have just as easily been his torturers and tormentors. You know, and when you look at the history of humanity, I, I studied what, what the Nazis did in Eastern Europe in the early 40s. And you look at what China's doing today. China is the evil empire, you know, millions of people in concentration camps right now in China. The one baby policy, if you've ever seen any documentaries or read that, atrocities, atrocities. Yep. And uh, no different than me. I'm a human, you know, no different than me, the atrocities in the right, in the right position, in the wrong position. There's no, there's nothing I would not do to save my children. You know, I would sacrifice my own soul to save my children's lives, right or wrong. I, I know that's in me, right? And so, um, and I, I was reminded of this lyric, this Jay Z lyric. He's a rapper, Jay Z. Yeah. He's, it's a song. Him and him, this him and Beyonce do this duet. It's a great song, Bonnie and Clyde. And he says, you know, he'll do anything necessary for her. She'll do anything necessary for him. So don't let the net. So don't let the necessary happen, you know, or, or don't let the situation happen in the first place, basically, right? Like, if you want to be a person who's not committing atrocities, stay out of situations where, you know, you're, where that would, where your children's lives are on the line, yeah. you know, secure a life for your, right? So, so reason why I say that is this, it, it takes an incredible amount of strength to be kind in the wrong positions, you know, incredible amount of strength to be kind in the right positions. And so if we, if we as, as an individual, if we're not, number one, constantly recognizing how fallible we are and how easily we could be evil, you know, if called upon, or um, the, the data is, it, it's, a, it, it's open and shut case when you look at uh, Germany and the Nazis in the 20th century, China, the Soviets, you look at all of them. Um, I'm not convinced that those were evil people 
in the entire country, right? Oh, absolutely. They were, they're not, no, they were willing to do evil things, though. Every single corner, I mean, the Boy, the Boy Scouts of Germany were mobilized to turn Jews in. You know what I mean? Every single corner were mobilized, right? And why was that? Frankly, I would say it was a lack of strength that allowed these people to, be, to become uh, atrocious, you know? And I see it today in our country, too. I see people who... Um, some don't know how to suffer. They don't, they're not strong enough to suffer. And so when they're hungry and when they're scared, when they're, that's just fear, yeah. right? You can see what people, the, the state people are in, and they've been in for a while. I see a lot of afraid people. When I see, when I break down fascism and totalitarianism, and you can see what drives that's fear. It's, it's always fear. That's what's stoked. They're the enemy. They're the enemy. They're the enemy. And then they say, I'm the only one who you can trust. People are, and you see it, I'm sorry to say Trump uses that uh, same language sometimes. I, I hate to even bring that up in our conversation because I know it's so loaded. But when I hear the language he uses, I hear yeah, him. I, I, I talk to everybody on, on both sides because I, I, yeah. I follow I him. It's, it's, in, it's interesting. But so I hear him using the language of totalitarianism. Yeah. You know, he says, I'm the only source of truth. I'm the only source of knowledge. He says that over and over again. You can't trust the media. You can't trust scholars. You can't trust experts. You can only trust me. And, and, the reason, and, and you should be afraid. He says that over and over again. Now, with the, with the pandemic, he hasn't done that. He's done the opposite with that, which I felt was very interesting. Um, it's a, it, was a, it was a total change of his normal, his normal um, philosophy. But most of his campaign and, and his, uh, his rhetoric is based on... Yeah, I feel like politicians in general do this on... They do. They do. And, and, and not, just, not just him. So just so that we're not getting, uh, you know, uh, politically polarized at all, I, I, my, my thought is always that these people in positions of, uh, of power, and I wish there was a way to, to, to find that gene that makes people want to control others. Uh, and it's, well, it's called humanity. But it, it, it's it is trying to control your situation, right? It's, so whatever means you have to keep your children alive and you alive and get yeah. your needs... You're going to exercise that, but you're 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 right, and 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 that many many people um, tell you what to be afraid of. Uh, depending on your side of the aisle, you are afraid, right. you're fearful of something, and and the other person on the other side of the aisle is fearful of something. You can pick right. any political issue that's polarizing, <laughs> and, you're, and those people are like, no, we have to fear this, we have to fear this, yeah. no, we have to fear this, we have to fear this, and 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 they almost it almost seems like they want us to 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 be fearful of that. That's that's uh, that's my take on that. And listen, you're right, and and this is what I would say about you know again, I, I didn't even want to bring up Trump. Oh, I know I, that's because I w I wanted to get back to what yeah. you had said about strength and kindness, which is really, and I thought this is where you kind of hit that. For me, I wanted to know what you thought, strength and kindness. And you said, well, for me, it, it's, it's incredibly difficult to be kind in the wrong situation. And that, I think, is, is important. So strength and kindness is, being, is, is having the courage to act in the way that we know is and I, I do, I do understand that morality can be fluid, but we we have some basic concepts as humans that we know are are truly good, uh, and we have to be willing to have to to do those things, even when we know that that it might not be uh, group accepted. That's right. That's right. Now, um, with the totalitarianism, you see it on the left and the right, and they're exactly the same. Yeah, it, they're exactly the same. They use the same language. 
They use the same mechanisms. The first, you know, the first thing they do is they discredit or kill, like the Camry Rouge, everybody who's got a college education, yeah. everybody who's educated. It's the first thing that they do because, what the, of course, what does that do? That puts them in a position of being the sole arbiter of truth and knowledge, right? So it's not a left or right thing. You notice I brought up Solzhenitsyn and the Nazis. Um, you know, they're from the, you know, the Nazis, they, they claim to be from the left, but you know, they were socialists. I mean, they, yeah, yeah, in the classical that's term, what it right? Yeah. That's what it stands for. Right. And, 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 and a true national socialism in, in that they, um, nationalized certain parts of the economy, you know, Italy, same thing. Yeah. Um, but because it, it, that's what we, and I feel like, um, so, so easy. Why? I, I mean, I, I'm always looking for answers, but why, why it's just amazing that fear, it's such a powerful motivator. It's what's kept us alive as a species. Yeah, I, I mean, I get the... If, uh, if every one of our ancestors yes. wasn't constantly vigilant yes. of either an arrow hitting them in the eye or a tiger attacking them, yep. none of us would be here. So it's, it's, it's ingrained for a billion years yes. of life, life's evolution on this planet. There's, and it's... We would, none of us... So I think some, in some cases... I don't know if you ever listened to... Um, um, you listen to other podcasts too, oh, I yeah. imagine. All right, so um, so uh, you know what's this? Um, one person I like to listen to. Oh, geez, I can't. I'm having a brain fart right now. But he's the person I learned about Solzhenitsyn from. And um, let me pick up his name. I can't believe I'm having a brain fart right now. All right, now. I have him all the time. But anyway, we'll he is a psychoanalyst. There. He's a psychoanalyst. Yeah. And um, oh, I right hear um, Jordan Peterson. Oh yeah, so, so maybe hundreds of hours logged with that guy now. But there's also this oh, other, yeah, it's phenomenal, weird. right? Let me. This is really weird. Like I, I, uh, yes, I d- devour Jordan Peterson among others. Uh, Sam Harris. Jordan yeah, I like Sam Harris sometimes. Uh, Michael Shermer. I listen to Rogan's podcast all the time. God, I, I, I wish I had that guy's job. <laughs> I mean, smoking pot for two hours with Elon Musk. I mean, come on, dude. And he's getting, you know, and he's making bank. And, and of course, he also gets to be a, a voice of the, of the UFC, yeah. I mean, you know. But I, I, so I'm with you. I listened to Jordan Peterson. I wrote, I read his book. Um, yep. Um, did you know, read uh, uh, Maps of Meaning? So, no, I did not read Maps of Meaning, which that, I should. I, and I've heard that's more of a uh, scholarly work. Than it is scholarly, but there's nothing you couldn't handle. I mean, it's, oh, yeah, of course. Right? It's just but taking I, a while. The point I was about to make is you, you bring him up, and I, he's been so influential to so many people. I, Let me tell you, I'm liberal. Uh, yeah. I, and I love Jordan Peterson. Yeah. I, I might be the only liberal who says that. But um, so that, what I would say is I got caught up with him in his biblical studies. His, oh, his, yeah, uh, yeah. Because, you know, uh, I really enjoy the uh, Jungian analysis of symbols. And so I'm really interested in that. Um, philosophy is one of my hobbies. So a yeah. friend of mine, Chris Matakis, uh, he was in my garage working out one day listening to this guy. And I, he said, you got to listen. He, he said, no, you got to listen to this guy. So him, I also read this guy, uh, uh, to get back to your question, because he's closely related, Jonathan Haidt. Are you familiar with oh, him yeah, at John, all? Jonathan Haidt is awesome. I actually, uh, I actually yeah, I've read th- several of his books. Okay. Uh, and, um, so have you read I his applied, book? About- I applied to a position uh, that was t- that Jonathan Haidt was the executive director of, uh, and I actually applied to be uh, a writer uh, for this enterprise. That I didn't get the job, but it was when I was kind of, uh, you know, just in that coming off of my last job and getting this other one, I kind of applied just out of blue and thing. But I love Jonathan Haidt. That guy is phenomenal. So I just want to set the table a little bit with those two guys, just so you know kind of where I'm coming from. So you know exactly where I'm coming from. His book on why the left and the right can't get along. Yeah, it's a great read book. That book. Yep. So uh, you asked the question. 
I have a long yeah. commute, so audible. Oh, so one of the things that's interesting, what, one of the things that was a revelation to me in that book was the study of disgust. Yes. And so I actually, I've been toying with the idea. I don't know how I could ever come up with the money to do it and, over the time, but I was actually thinking about uh, very seriously, I was in fact doing the research on what it would take to become a counselor. Because what I'm specifically, what I'm specifically interested in is disgust. Because when you look at totalitarianism, they speak with the language of disgust. You know, Hitler, as you know from the book, first thing he did was he went after all the rats in Germany. He was a man of disgust. And interestingly enough, if, if you, I don't know if you've called on Jordan Peterson, but Jordan, in a Jordan Peterson uh, podcast at one point, he talked about how they recorded all of his dinners and all of his conversations. And they said all he talked about was things he was disgusted with. He was a man of disgust. And, and when I look at fascism and totalitarianism in general, what do I see? That's a common thread for all of them. It's disgust. Now, when you think about this, think about the emotion of disgust. Yeah. When you, when you stomp on a cockroach, it's because it's disgusting to you. When you, when you, that, when you that's poison. That's one, by the way, Noah, cockroaches are yeah. my, my one irrational fear. Yeah, fear. Congratulations for hitting on that. <laughs> I'm going to, I, by the way, he's like, are you afraid of anything? I'm like, nah, not really. Um, okay, cockroaches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hate them. <laughs> yeah. My only, honestly, my only fear, real fear is being weak. That's my insecurity. That's why I lift weights. Cause I'm afraid that the time will come that I have to stand up for my family, defend my family and my friends, and I will, I'll be physically incompetent. That's, that's my deepest insecurity. The reason why I train jiu-jitsu and, and lift weights is because that's, that's my fear. Damn. And, um, oh, that sounds like, man, what, what a burden. <laughs> that's, well, you know what? It's, uh, you show me anybody who's ever been good at anything yeah. who didn't have a demon them in the ass yeah i guess that's true uh you know someone's gotta make it anything though that's you know when I, when you do ask about insecurities that uh, uh, uh or fears and that's that's man that's a powerful one right there brother that's been uh uh that's I hope that it doesn't keep you up at night no it doesn't keep me up at night because i'm a, I'm a brazilian Richard black belt and i can <laughs> deal with 400 pounds that's true that's right so yeah. you know he could do that that's how i that's how i can sleep at night all right good so yeah. so, so, the, so so that so that's why i bring this thing up with disgust like how, how is it that we see human beings willing to commit atrocities over issues of purity? You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's disgust. And so um, it takes an incredible, and again, we go back to the strength and kindness thing, right? So uh, the reason why I've been thinking about going back to school is because what I would like to do is I would like to help people by, by shining, by, I would like to help people by helping them shine a light and understand that they too have things that disgust them. Like I like bullies disgust me. Yeah, I know. Thing, man, bullies. You're always bullies. And the and and the forms of but racism disgusts yeah. me. Like it, nothing make, would makes me happier than, than punching a racist in the face. You know, it disgusts me. But look, that's not right. That's not right to punch people in the face. You know, and so I know that if it can be, it can be in certain situations, <laughs> right? But but I never, But I don't want to be so disgusted by someone's ideas that I have to physically harm them to handle it, right? That's a, that's weakness, right? And that's not going to get me or anybody else anywhere, right? Unless I kill them, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not willing to do that unless I eliminate them. But see, that's, that's what totalitarianisms do. As they look at you, they say, look, they say, you're a gypsy, you're a Jew, you're a communist, you have the wrong religion, you're a Muslim, you're an immigrant, 
disgusted by you. And that allows them, that disgust is what allows them to overcome the normal human sanctions against the committee atrocities. If you read, uh, I don't know if you've ever read any Dave Grossman. It's fascinating. He wrote a couple books that I read when I was uh, incapacitated with back surgery. What, his name is Lieutenant Dave Grossman. He wrote a book called On Killing, and he wrote a book on combat. And I believe it was on, I, I think it was on combat was the first one I wrote. And he posited a very interesting idea. He, and, I, and I'm going to ask you, your, while I have you here, I really want to know your opinion on this. He thought that PS, PTSD, and he gave a lot of, he, this whole book is, he many examples of how I thought this, this played out. But he thought PTSD was primarily driven by the fear of killing rather than the fear of dying. And I thought that was a fascinating proposition. And, he, and he, there's a lot of interesting points where he talks about, you know, the people who firebombed Berlin. Nothing but old women and children in Berlin at the time. That was an atrocity. Now, those guys who dropped the bombs, no PTSD. They were separated by space. They couldn't see the people they were killing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now, he, then, he, then he breaks it down, and he goes into places like Waterloo, and they're digging up these rifles where they see people just kept reloading their muskets over and over and over again, not even firing them. And then he goes in, in like World War II where he, said, where he gave examples of, he said, you know, these weren't cowards who didn't want to kill people. They weren't cowards. They assisted the other people. You know, they ran around with, with, uh, with uh, ordinances. They ran around, you know, they, they helped the others. They weren't cowards. And then he goes in and he's talked about snipers. You know, the, you know this. The guy who shoots isn't in charge. The guy next to you is in charge. One, two, three, shoot. It's not even your choice to shoot. Could be because taking that away from the individual takes away the moral complicity or, or responsibility for it, right? That's why snipers can, can shoot somebody in the face, right? And it talks about the difficulty between, the difference between bayoneting someone and dropping a bomb. And he said, it's, he, and it was very interesting. Now, I don't know if this is true because I know that now these drone pilots have, have rates of PTSD. And I think you're in a unique position uh, to tell me what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any ideas? Is it totally off base? Or does this guy have it make any sense? No, uh, it does. Um, I, I'm not going to be an expert uh, to, to be able to say, but it seems to me that, that PTSD – uh, does come out of, and, and PTSD isn't just, you know, it, uh, rape victims have PTSD. Uh, so it's not about um, killing, but it is about, I think, this um, being put, it, it seems like a lot of PTSD is being put into a position that is um, that is outside the normal realm of, of human uh, experience in a way that is terrifying. Um, so that, that is what I kind of, when I think of PTSD, that is what I, so, you know, rape victims have it, uh, just as much as, uh, someone who has, uh, who has had to, to kill people in combat. Um, so th there is, there are different ways to, to have PTSD. Um, you know, I don't know. So is it, it, it is it disgust at killing somebody? I, I, Possibly that's one. Apparently, people vomit a lot the first yeah, time. There's one, there's one. That's one route to PTSD. But the, the mind definitely. Uh, it's it's amazing how it tries to cope with with uh, with circumstances that are outside of human existence that we're not typically equipped to to do. So uh, again, yeah, a, a soldier that has uh, that has seen a lot 
uh, gets that that sort of uh, callousness, that thousand yard stare. Uh, they 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 start to lose connection, uh, personal connection, and then when they come back to a normal life, it's hard for them to adjust um, because they th- their mind has uh, has gone to places where they. That it's changed, and again, that's that neuroplasticity that you talked about, right? Uh, so it takes time to get back to, um, you know, to heal for the mind to heal. Uh, so I don't know, but I'm not an expert in PTSD by any means, although it's it's fascinating. So, but I that that you know, it's uh, it is funny that you you know, and you mentioned totalitarianism and disgust is one of, you know, that's one that's one of the reasons I'm so individual, uh, so much I. I one of the things I cannot stand is groupthink and orthodox. Um, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm very often I'm, I'm accused of being argumentative, uh, and I am, I suppose, but it's because I, I, I want to challenge an orthodox view all the time. Yeah, well, that's uh, always that's always want to do it almost to my detriment. Sometimes I probably haven't thought it through enough, but but if a, if enough people are saying, "Hey, this is right," then I'm like, uh, "Is it?" You know what? I would actually suggest the fact that you're challenging those ideas means you're thinking about it enough. Yeah, that's that's right. And, and yeah. you know, remember, as a matter of fact, I don't wish my mind on anyone either. You know, you you were just saying, hey, I'm, I'm, my fear is being weak because I, you know, what if I can't defend my family? I'm like, oh my god, I would not, I wouldn't want that to be my <laughs> my fear. On the other hand, uh, like I don't wish my mind on anybody because I am constantly constantly going like I, I I keep thinking all the time, what is it that I believe that is not right? What is it that I believe that is incorrect yeah. right now? And, and that's hard yes. because I don't have, it's hard to, I envy people that have this center, this ultimate belief in something that is right. You know, like religion, you know, they, the most, some of the most religious people are super happy because they really, I mean, they, they, they have it figured out in their mind. And for me, that's not a possibility because I'm always the guy going, yeah, no, that, that doesn't seem to make sense. I don't think that that can be right. And so I'm constantly evolving, but I can't stay on one thing. I don't have a center. Uh, and it, that's, that's tough in its own way. But I don't think that I would be the one, uh, I guess, when I, when I do kind of think about Nazi Germany or, or, or the atrocities in Cambodia, you know, I, I probably would definitely be the guy going, uh, no, as a matter of fact, I'd probably be dead if I were in those places because because that's what they would do. I'd be going, I don't think so. I don't like that idea. This is not, why is this? Well, see, this is the, this is the thing that I I think that is so important about what you're talking about is challenging your own ideas because look, if your ideas can't hold up to your own scrutiny, they're not good ideas. In in fact, they go into, um, I think height might've been height, wrote about it so basically your ideas have you you don't have your ideas right if you are not willing to challenge them like if your head explodes when somebody says you know what communism is by far the best economic system yeah then you know what the idea has you you don't have the idea because like for me i'm willing to go down the road with you and pick that apart and and prove to myself again that that's a horrible system you know what I mean? I'm not so threatened by an idea that I can't think about it. And that, and that to me, that actually shows how centered you actually are. I would suggest to you that the, uh, the biggest single problem we have as, as humans in this country, in a democracy, is that almost nobody is willing to do that. Almost nobody is willing to say, wait a minute, maybe capitalism is wrong. You know, how many capitalists are willing to actually say, wait a minute, maybe capitalism is wrong. Let me go through it again. Let me let me take a chance 
I'm being wrong because you know the thing about being wrong is people don't understand this. Well, they do when I when I articulate to them. And finding out that you are mistaken or wrong about something is actually physically painful. Oh, absolutely. To admit yeah. that you're wrong about yeah. something, yeah. physically painful. And yeah. it's humiliating you if you do it in front of somebody else. Yeah, when you it's humiliating. Orthodox, they they absolutely uh, become defensive. It's quite. Yeah. It's humiliating. Like, imagine if I were able to prove to you, like, you're like, I, I sympathize strongly with libertarianism. I, I don't, it's never worked anywhere. So I, I don't think it's a viable system, you know, wholeheartedly. But I have strong, strong sympathetic sympathies to, for libertarianism. And like, and like, so for me, you know, I can, how do I say, it doesn't bother me if, oh, let me see. How I want to say this: If we have to be willing to accept the fact that the foundations of our lives are misplaced, you know, and you. But the problem with that is, is when you lose. I was once religious. I'm not religious. Orthodox anymore. I was a Christian. Grew up Christian. When I was 14, lost my faith. It was really painful. Yeah. And I would say, through my entire life, I've always wanted to get some kind of a piece back from that you know what i mean and so so for me you know i think to, I, because i've had that experience i become much more cautious in approaching somebody and saying listen the foundation of your life is flawed and i'm going to tell you why it's flawed i'm going to prove it to you i'm going to humiliate you right now and i'm going to humiliate you to such a degree by showing you how wrong you are that it's going to actually cause you physical and, and emotional pain probably the rest of your life. You know what I mean? Because that's what losing your faith does. Yeah. It literally causes you. And so, and so when I see how quick people are, and, and I, I debate with people all the time, you know, um, I, but what I've discovered is, is how quick people will fly into a rage if you start poking a hole in that that veil, that veil of that idea, because that's what it is—a veil. You don't even see it anymore. Yep. You see the veil. Like yeah. you can show people data, but and I they, like they can't even. What I like to say is that everybody is telling themselves a story. Yeah, uh, and they and they hold to that story. I'm telling myself a story too. So are you. Uh, yeah. the, the difference, I think, with me is that I I don't believe my story, uh, or I'm consciously trying to challenge my story all the time. Yeah. That is hard. That is hard because, like you said, uh, these people that have a, a, a strong belief in a certain thing, uh, they, they, they tend to be fairly happy. I mean, most of the time, they tend to be fairly happy because there is something centered, right? They have something that is centered in them. And so I would not, like you said, I mean, I, if someone has a strong faith, I, I, I'm, I'm not probably going to be the one to try and you know, prove to them with science that their faith is misplaced because what I, that's almost evil in itself, right? I don't want to take that from them. They have to, they have to come to the, you know, that on their own. And, uh, but I do, it does suck to be, to be the guy that's constantly, you know, tearing down the foundation, I guess, uh, of, of everything. And I, I have that. It doesn't make you popular. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the same way. It doesn't make you popular. You know, anybody in the Marine Corps very well, by the way, Nolan. <laughs> I mean, I mean, who likes to be told they're wrong? Yeah, no one. You know, nobody does. You know, and it's um, it is. And so, you know, it's but you know, it's interesting. I don't know how many people understand that about themselves. You know, like articulate it because I see how how easily it um how uh, I would say 
how much pain it can cause you if someone said you were talking about religion, but I mean, I, to me, uh, you know, you have social structures of all kinds. You have, uh, I don't know, pick something. Um, but one thing I would say is not all beliefs make you happy. Uh, plenty no, of beliefs make you miserable. And I, and I feel like, and so it's a very interesting tension between number one, seeking the truth, you know, and constantly challenging your perceptions. Cause you know, your perceptions are fallible. You know, your reasoning's fallible. You know, your experiences are, you know, sort of illusionary, right? So you've got this weird thing where you, where you absolutely know for a fact yeah. that you can't know everything. If you're honest at all, you know you're wrong about something. You have to be wrong about something. I mean, unless you're a complete egomaniacal person, you have to say to yourself, I'm wrong about something. And if you admit that you're wrong about something, well, what is it? I don't want to be wrong about something important, right? So, so that takes a constant, as Jordan Peterson would say, you contend with the truth. You contend with it. You know, and whatever that is, and, and, and as we, and the universe really unfolds to us, you know, it's like, you know, it's like a, like a, I imagine like a carpet, you know, being like a red carpet being rolled down. I mean, it's revealed as you go and it's new information and it's new experiences and your minds change. And so, you know, truth, truth does seem to wiggle, you know what I mean? And I'm not a postmodernist. I am not a postmodernist. I think it's a, it's a foundation of, of wet sand. You know, it's a house of rice paper, but rationally, if you're going to use rational logic, postmodernism fits into that. You can't rationally disprove it, you know, but the problem is, is where does it leave you? It doesn't leave you anywhere. It has nothing to contend with. So it's in some ways, I feel like as a human, you have to pick some truths to even survive, to even put one foot in front of the other. That's, that's absolutely, I I think that's true. And well, is it true? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it does seem that we as humans are, are, are coded to, uh, to want to, to believe in certain things. So I'm always like, you know, what, what, is, what is right? What is right? And, it, and it's hard because I, I, can, I do see both sides of, of, of issues so well. And, and, I, and I definitely hate, again, that, that, that constant, you know, heterodox yeah, you know, almost sometimes probably just to do it. Uh, I have to be careful and go, okay, why am I really doing this? Because I, but it, it is, it's fascinating stuff, man. And that's kind of, that's why I do this podcast actually, Noah, because I, I like to talk to people and I like to talk like this. Um, and I'm a, I'm a bit of a philosophy, uh, a hobbyist myself. Um, so yeah. Um, but anyway, well, listen, man, we've been, we've been going almost three hours here. Um, so I think it's probably a good place to call it, man. I'm, I'm, I know okay. my wife is, my wife is probably waiting for me to stop. So my daughter just peered around the corner. <laughs> I think she was telling me to shut up, but man, this was great. No, just a, just a fascinating, enjoyable conversation, man. I, man, I didn't know half that. I didn't know any of that stuff. We have never talked really that, you know, it's always just in passing at the, at the gym, yeah. you know, at the, at the uh, school. And so, but you know, hey, I, I, offline, let, I hope we can talk about uh, getting your fight club together. Well, you know, I, I hope I hope offline we can talk about a lot of things together. I feel like I've uh, found a kindred spirit. Yeah. And, um, you know, I uh, as I said before, um, I, I, especially over the last four years, I would say, have really been trying to look in the mirror, uh, challenge my own ideas. And um, I have learned a tremendous amount of change. Like I told you before, I'm a liberal um, for the most part, but I, I don't know if I'm a liberal anymore. 
<laughs> you know, because I feel like in some ways, like there's a, there's a lot of a lot of liberalism that I, I that they've left me behind on. Yeah. And there's also a lot of uh, as you said because I because I've actually tried to listen to people and understand where people are coming from. Um, it's it's becoming much harder for me just to demonize somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's uh, it's uh, it's a great thing, and, and it's um, but. There, we, there needs to be more of these conversations. We need to, we need to be able to, you know, like, you know, your sister who voted for the wrong party, she was your best friend two weeks ago and now she's an evil person, you know? I mean, come on guys, you know, we can get, we can, we can get this together. You know, I mean, I go jujitsu. I thank God. I don't know most of those people's minds very well because what I know about them is that they're, they're, they're strong kind and generous. You know, I don't want to know the bad stuff. I want to know the version that they present to me at jujitsu. <laughs> you know, and um, that, and the reason why is because um, I frankly I feel like if a lot of people knew everything that I thought, I think they would demonize me. I think Christians might demonize. I know Christians would demonize me because I have some very unorthodox views on that. And uh, I know liberals would probably, you know, de- here I am a Democrat, and I know that uh, liberals would demonize me for the the transgender thing. I'm not. I think it's kind of off. And anyway, I want to go, go issue by issue, but I mean, the liberals were me because I do think we should have some kind of a barrier that a million people crossing the border. I think we should have some kind of barrier that stops people from just running over our border, you know, but it's, now I'm not a liberal anymore. You know, now I'm a, now I'm a fascist, you know, so I don't think too many of us actually fit into neat little boxes. And I think what you're doing with this podcast and, uh, and sharing your thoughts and, Allowing other people to challenging me and allowing me to challenge you a little bit, maybe. Um, I, I I think if we could somehow actually I know how to do it. Um, there's rules of debate. I don't know if you know about this. There's this oh. interesting rules in certain debate clubs yeah. where two of us are talking, right? I don't get to talk until I can cheat your satisfaction, accurately represent your point of view, line by line, and then I get to rebut it. Yeah. And then you don't get to rebut me until you can line by line to show me that you actually understand where I'm coming from instead of just throwing bullet points that you got off a crossfire at me. You know what I mean? And But you know what? Like you've said, it's very, very difficult to challenge your core beliefs and have really difficult conversations and, and um, put yourself in a situation where you might be humiliated by your own stupidity. And uh, But that takes an incredible amount of strength, I think. So... As I said before, I think you're a kind person, and it takes strength to be kind. And uh, I want to thank you for being uh, strong and kind. I want to thank you for being a freedom fighter. And I want you to know that I, uh, as I said before, it's uh, it's all I ever wanted to be my whole life was be a freedom fighter. If I could, uh, if I could do it today, I would do it. Yeah. And uh, so I want to thank you for that too. Well, Noah, it's been a pleasure, man. I look forward to talking to you again offline here, man. I hope we can make this happen. Like I said, I got some time coming up. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking this time, brother. You know what? Worst comes to worst, man. You're going to get in the garage. We're going to roll. We're going to pick up some barbells, and we can just keep jibber-jabbering. That's all, I love it, man. That, that's awesome. We'll make it a uh, the, the, the warrior monks. Yeah. That's who we are, brother. That's how it's going to be. Love it. All right, Noah. See you oh, soon, okay? Yep. I loved it, man. Thanks. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us here again today in the Ready Room. 
I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I know I did. And I'm looking forward to bringing you more of the same in the near future with intriguing and inspirational guests from all walks of life. If you did like it and you want to join us again, please subscribe to The Ready Room and take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, your favorite podcast app, wherever it is you're going to get your podcasts. Uh, You can also find us online at readyroombrief.com. I've been your co-host, Richard Frederick, and on behalf of Chunks and myself, we really thank you for being here. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll join us next time in The Ready Room.